chill books original human civilization chapter one of al-muqaddimah the introduction by ibn khaldun first prefatory discussion human social organization is something necessary the philosophers expressed this fact by saying man is political by nature that is he cannot do without the social organization for which the philosophers use the technical term town, polis. This is what civilization means. The necessary character of human social organization or civilization is explained by the fact that God created and fashioned man in a form that can live and subsist only with the help of food. He guides men to a natural desire for food and instilled in him the power that enables him to obtain it. However, the power of the individual human being is not sufficient for him to obtain the food he needs and does not provide him with as much food as he requires to live. Even if we assume an absolute minimum of food that is food enough for one day, a little wheat, for instance, that amount of food could be obtained only after much preparation such as grinding, kneading and baking. Each of these three operations requires utensils and tools that can be provided only with the help of several crafts such as the crafts of the blacksmith, the carpenter, and the potter. Assuming that a man could eat unprepared grain, an even greater number of operations would be necessary in order to obtain the grain, sowing and reaping, and threshing to separate it from the husks of the ear. Each of these operations requires a number of tools and many more crafts than those just mentioned. It is beyond the power of one man alone to do all that, or, even, part of it, by himself. Thus, he cannot do without a combination of many powers from among his fellow beings, if he is to obtain food for himself and for them. Through cooperation, the needs of a number of persons, many times greater than their own, number, can be satisfied. Likewise, each individual needs the help of his fellow beings for his defense, as well, when God fashioned the natures of all living beings and divided the various powers among them, many dumb animals were given more perfect powers than God gave to man. The power of a horse, for instance, is much greater than the power of man, and so is the power of a donkey or an ox. The power of a lion or an elephant is many times greater than the power of man. Aggressiveness is natural in living beings. Therefore, God gave each of them a special limb for defense against aggression. To man, instead, he gave the ability to think, and the hand, with the help of the ability to think, the hand is able to prepare the ground for the crafts. The crafts, in turn, procure for man the instruments that serve him instead of limbs, which other animals possess for their defense. Lances, for instance, take the place of horns for goring, swords the place of claws to inflict wounds, shields the place of thick skins, and so on. There are other such things, they were all mentioned by Galen in De Usu Partium. The power of one individual human being cannot withstand the power of any one dumb animal, especially not the power of the predatory animals. Man is generally unable to defend himself against them by himself, nor is his, unaided, power sufficient to make use of the existing instruments of defense, because there are so many of them and they require so many crafts and, additional, things. It is absolutely necessary for man to have the cooperation of his fellow men, as long as there is no such cooperation, he cannot obtain any food or nourishment, and life cannot materialize for him because God fashioned him so that he must have food if he is to live. Nor, lacking weapons, can he defend himself. Thus, 
he falls prey to animals and dies much before his time. Under such circumstances, the human species would vanish. When, however, mutual cooperation exists, man obtains food for his nourishment and weapons for his defense. God's wise plan that mankind should subsist and the human species be preserved will be fulfilled. Consequently, social organization is necessary to the human species. Without it, the existence of human beings would be incomplete. God's desire to settle the world with human beings and to leave them as his representatives on earth would not materialize. This is the meaning of civilization, the object of the science under discussion. The aforementioned remarks have been in the nature of establishing the existence of the object in this particular field. A scholar in a particular discipline is not obliged to do this, since it is accepted in logic that a scholar in a particular science does not have to establish the existence of the object in that science. On the other hand, logicians do not consider it forbidden to do so. Thus, it is a voluntary contribution. God, in his grace, gives success, when mankind has achieved social organization, as we have stated, and when civilization in the world has thus become a fact, people need someone to exercise a restraining influence and keep them apart, for aggressiveness and injustice are in the animal nature of man. The weapons made for the defense of human beings against the aggressiveness of dumb animals do not suffice against the aggressiveness of man to man, because all of them possess those weapons. Thus, something else is needed for defense against the aggressiveness of human beings toward each other. It could not come from outside, because all the other animals fall short of human perceptions and inspiration. The person who exercises a restraining influence, therefore, must be one of themselves. He must dominate them and have power and authority over them, so that no one of them will be able to attack another. This is the meaning of royal authority. It has thus become clear that royal authority is a natural quality of man which is absolutely necessary to mankind. The philosophers mentioned that it also exists among certain dumb animals, such as the bees and the locusts one discerns among them the existence of authority and obedience to a leader. They follow the one of them who is distinguished as their leader by his natural characteristics and body. However, outside of human beings, these things exist as the result of natural disposition and divine guidance, and not as the result of an ability to think or to administrate. He gave everything its natural characteristics, and then guided it. The philosophers go further. They attempt to give logical proof of the existence of prophecy and to show that prophecy is a natural quality of man. In this connection, they carry the argument to its ultimate consequences and say that human beings absolutely require some authority to exercise a restraining influence. They go on to say that such restraining influence exists through the religious law, that has been, ordained by God and revealed to mankind by a human being. This human being, is distinguished from the rest of mankind by special qualities of divine guidance that God gave him, in order that he might find the others submissive to him and ready to accept what he says. Eventually, the existence of a, restraining, authority among them and over them becomes a fact that is accepted without the slightest disapproval or dissent. This proposition of the philosophers is not logical, as one can see. Existence and human life can materialize without, the existence of prophecy, through injunctions a person in authority may devise on his own or with the help of a group feeling that enables him to force the others to follow him wherever he wants to go. People who have a, divinely revealed, book and who follow the prophets a few in number in comparison with, all, the magians who have no, divinely revealed, book. 
the latter constitute the majority of the world's inhabitants, still, they, too, have possessed dynasties and monuments, not to mention life itself, they still possess these things at this time in the intemperate zones to the north and the south, this is in contrast with human life in the state of anarchy, with no one to exercise a restraining influence, that would be impossible, this shows that, the philosophers, are wrong when they assume that prophecy exists by necessity, the existence of prophecy is not required by logic, its, necessary character, is indicated by the religious law, as was the belief of the early Muslims, God gives success and guidance. Second Prefatory Discussion The parts of the earth where civilization is found. Some information about oceans, rivers, and zones. In the books of philosophers who speculated about the condition of the world, it has been explained that the earth has a spherical shape and is enveloped by the element of water. It may be compared to a grape floating upon water. The water withdrew from certain parts of the earth, because God wanted to create living beings upon it and settle it with the human species that rules as God's representative over all other beings. One might from this get the impression that the water is below the earth. This is not correct. The natural below of the earth is the core and middle of its sphere, the center to which everything is attracted by its gravity. All the sides of the earth beyond that and the water surrounding the earth are above. When some part of the earth is said to be below, it is said to be so with reference to some other region of the earth. The part of the earth from which the water has withdrawn is one half the surface of the sphere of the earth. It has a circular form and is surrounded on all sides by the element of water which forms a sea called the surrounding sea, Albar al-Mahit. It is also called Lablaya, with thickening of the second length, or Oceanos. Both are non-Arabic words. It is also called the Green Sea and the Black Sea, the part of the earth that is free from water, and thus suitable, for human civilization has more waste and empty areas than cultivated, habitable, areas. The empty area in the south is larger than that in the north. The cultivated part of the earth extends more toward the north. In the shape of a circular plane it extends in the south to the equator and in the north to a circular line, behind which there are mountains separating the cultivated part of the earth from the elemental water. Enclosed between these mountains is the dam of Gog and Magog. These mountains extend toward the east. In the east and the west, they also reach the elemental water, at two sections, points, of the circular, line, that surrounds, the cultivated part of the earth. The part of the earth that is free from water is said to cover one half or less of the sphere, of the earth, the cultivated part covers one fourth of it, it is divided into seven zones, the equator divides the earth into two halves from west to east, it represents the length of the earth, it is the longest line on the sphere of, the earth, just as the ecliptic and the equinoctial line are the longest lines on the firmament. The ecliptic is divided into 360 degrees, the geographical degree is 25 parasangs, the parasang being 12,000 cubits or 3 miles, since 1 mile has 4,000 cubits, the cubit is 24 fingers, and the finger is 6 grains of barley placed closely together in one row. The distance of the equinoctial line, parallel to the equator of the earth and dividing the firmament into two parts, is 90 degrees from each of the two poles. However, the cultivated area north of the equator is, only, 64 degrees. 
The rest is empty and uncultivated because of the bitter cold and frost, exactly as the southern part is altogether empty because of the heat. We shall explain it all, if God wills. Information about the cultivated part and its boundaries and about the cities, towns, mountains, rivers, waste areas, and sandy deserts it contains, has been given by men such as Ptolemy in the geography and, after him, by the author of the Book of Roger. These men divided the cultivated area into seven parts which they call the seven zones. The borders of the seven zones are imaginary, they extend from east to west. In width, latitudinal extension, they are identical, in length, longitudinal extension, different. The first zone is longer than the second, the same applies to the second zone, and so on. The seventh zone is the shortest. This is required by the circular shape that resulted from the withdrawal of the water from the sphere of the earth. According to these scholars, each of the seven zones is divided from west to east into ten contiguous sections. Information about general conditions and civilization is given for each section. The geographers mentioned that the Mediterranean which we all know branches off from the surrounding sea in the western part of the fourth zone. It begins at a narrow strait about 12 miles wide between Tangier and Tarifa, called the Street of Gibraltar. It then extends eastward and opens out to a width of 600 miles. It terminates at the end of the fourth section of the fourth zone, a distance of 1,160 parasangs from its starting point. There, it is bordered by the coast of Syria. On the south, it is bordered by the coast of the Maghreb, beginning with Tangier at the Straits, then Phrygia, Barca, and Alexandria. On the north, it is bordered by the coast of Constantinople, then Venice, Rome, France, and Spain, back to Tarifa at the street of Gibraltar, opposite Tangier. The Mediterranean is also called the Roman Sea or the Syrian Sea. It contains many populous islands. Some of them are large, such as Crete, Cyprus, Sicily, Majorca, and Sardinia. In the north, they say, Two other seas branch off from the Mediterranean through two straits. One of them is opposite Constantinople. It starts at the Mediterranean in a narrow straits, only an arrow shot in width. It flows for a three days run and touches Constantinople. Then, it attains a width of four miles. It flows in this channel for 60 miles, where it is known as the Straits of Constantinople. Through a mouth six miles wide, it then flows into the Black Sea, and becomes a sea that, from there, turns eastward in its course. It passes the land of Heraclea, in Bithynia, and ends at the country of the Khazars, 1,300 miles from its mouth. Along its two coasts live the Byzantine, the Turkish, the Bulgar, Virgin, and the Russian nations. The second sea that branches off from the two straits of the Mediterranean is the Adriatic Sea, Gulf of Venice. It emerges from Byzantine territory at its northern limit. Then, from Sant'Angelo, De Lombardi, its western boundary extends from the country of the Venetians to the territory of Aquilia, 1,100 miles from where it started. On its two shores live the Venetians, the Byzantines, Rum, and other nations. It is called the Gulf of Venice, Adriatic Sea. From the surrounding sea, they say, a large and wide sea flows on the east at 13 degrees north of the equator. It flows a little toward the south, entering the first zone. Then it flows west within the first zone until it reaches the country of the Abyssinians and the Negroes, the Zanj and Bib al-Mandeb in the fifth section of, the first zone, 4,500 parasangs from its starting point. This sea is called the Chinese, Indian, 
or Abyssinian Sea, Indian Ocean. It is bordered on the south by the country of the Negroes, Zanj, and the country of Berbera which Imral Kays mentioned in his poem. These Berbers do not belong to the Berbers who make up the tribes in the Maghrib. The sea is then bordered by the area of Mogadishu, Sufila, and the land of Al-Wigwik, and by other nations beyond which there is nothing but waste and empty areas. On the north, where it starts, it is bordered by China, then by eastern and western India, Al-Hind and Az-Zind, and then by the coast of the Yemen, that is, Al-Akif, Zubaid, and other cities. Where it ends, it is bordered by the country of the Negroes, and, beyond them, the Beja, two other seas, they say, branch off from the Indian Ocean. One of them branches off where the Indian Ocean ends, at Bib al-Mandeb. It starts out narrow, then flows widening toward the north and slightly to the west until it ends at the city of Alquium in the fifth section of the second zone, 1,400 miles from its starting point. This is the Sea of Alquium or Sea of Suez, Red Sea. From the Red Sea at Suez to Fustat is the distance of a three days journey. The Red Sea is bordered on the east by the coast of the Yemen, the Hyges, and Jidda, and then, where it ends, by Midian, Modjun, Isla, Ayla, and Foran. On the west, it is bordered by the coast of Upper Egypt, Adhib, Suakin, and Zila, Zila, and then, where it begins, by the country of the Beja. It ends at Al-Qiyam. It would reach the Mediterranean at Al-Arish. The distance between the Red Sea and the Mediterranean is a six days journey. Many rulers, both Muslim and pre-Islamic, have wanted to cut through the intervening territory with a canal, but this has not been achieved. The second sea branching off from the Indian Ocean and called the Persian Gulf, the Green Gulf, branches off at the region between the west coast of India and Al-Okhof in the Yemen. It flows toward the north and slightly to the west until it ends at Al-Abula on the coast of Al-Basra in the sixth section of the second zone, 440 parasangs from its starting point. It is called the Persian Gulf, Persian Sea. It is bordered on the east by the coast of western India, Mukrin, Kermin, Firs, and Al-Abula where it ends. On the west, it is bordered by the coast of Al-Bahrain, the Yamama, Oman, Ashir, and al where it starts. Between the Persian Gulf and Al-Qiyam lies the Arabian Peninsula, jutting out from the mainland into the sea. It is surrounded by the Indian Ocean to the south, by the Red Sea to the west, and by the Persian Gulf to the east. It adjoins the Iraq in the region between Syria and Al-Basra, where the distance between Syria and the Iraq is 1,500 miles. In the Iraq are Al-Kufa, Al-Kidistaya, Baghdad, the reception hall of Hosrah, at Tesiphon and Al-Hira. Beyond that live non-Arab nations such as the Turks, the Khazars, and others. The Arabian Peninsula comprises the Hijaz in the west, the Yamama, Al-Bahrain, and Oman in the east, and in the south the Yemen along the coast of the Indian Ocean. In the cultivated area of the earth, they say, there is another sea to the north in the land of the Dalem. This sea has no connection with the other seas. It is called the Sea of Jujin and Tabaristan, Caspian Sea. Its length is 1,000 miles, and its width 600. To the west of it lies Azerbaijan and the Dalem territory, to the east of it the land of the Turks and Kuvarizm, to the south of it Tabaristan, and to the north of it the land of the Khazars and the Alans. These are all the famous seas mentioned by the geographers. They further say that in the cultivated part of the earth, there are many rivers. 
The largest among them are four in number, namely, the Nile, the Euphrates, the Tigris, and the river of Balp which is called Oxus, Jehun. The Nile begins at a large mountain, 16 degrees beyond the equator at the boundary of the fourth section of the first zone. This mountain is called the Mountain of the Kwama. No higher mountain is known on earth. Many springs issue from the mountain, some of them flowing into one lake there, and some of them into another lake. From these two lakes, several rivers branch off, and all of them flow into a lake at the equator which is at the distance of a ten days journey from the mountain. From that lake, two rivers issue, one of them flows due north, passing through the country of the Nubar and then through Egypt. Having traversed Egypt, it divides into many branches lying close to each other, each of these is called a channel, all flow into the Mediterranean at Alexandria, this river is called the Egyptian Nile, it is bordered by Upper Egypt on the east, and by the oases on the west, the other river turns westward, flowing due west until it flows into the surrounding sea, this river is the Sudanese Nile, all the Negro nations live along its borders, the Euphrates begins in Armenia in the sixth section of the fifth zone. It flows south through Byzantine territory, Anatolia, past Malatya to Manbij, and then passes Siflin, Araga, and Al-Kufa until it reaches the marsh, Al-Batar, between Al-Basra and Wasit. From there it flows into the Indian Ocean. Many rivers flow into it along its course. Other rivers branch off from it and flow into the Tigris, the Tigris originates in a number of springs in the country of Kilat, which is also in Armenia. It passes on its course southward through Mosul, Azerbaijan, and Baghdad to Wasit. There, it divides into several channels, all of which flow into the Lake of Al-Basra and join the Persian Gulf. The Tigris flows east of the Euphrates, many large rivers flow into it from all sides. The region between the Euphrates and the Tigris, where it is first formed, is the Jazeera of Mosul, facing Syria on both banks of the Euphrates, and facing Azerbaijan on both banks of the Tigris. The Oxus originates at Balk, in the eighth section of the third zone, in a great number of springs there. Large rivers flow into it, as it follows a course from south to north. It flows through Khurasan, then past Khurasan to Khurizm in the eighth section of the fifth zone. It flows into Lake Aral, the Lake of Gurganj, which is situated at the foot, north, of the city of, Gurganj, in length as in width, it extends the distance of one month's journey. The river of Fargana and Tashkent, Ash-Shash, which comes from the territory of the Turks, flows into it. West of the Oxus lie Khurasan and Khwarizm. East of it lie the cities of Bukhari, At-Termi, and Samarkand. Beyond that are the country of the Turks, Fargana, the Karluk, and, other, non-Arab nations. All, this was mentioned by Ptolemy in his work and by the Sharaf, al-Idrizi, in the Book of Roger. All the mountains, seas, and rivers to be found in the cultivated part of the earth are depicted on maps and exhaustively treated in geography. We do not have to go any further into it. It is too lengthy a subject, and our main concern is with the Maghrib, the home of the Berbers, and the Arab home countries in the east. God gives success. Supplementary note to the second prefatory discussion. The northern quarter of the earth has more civilization than the southern quarter. The reason thereof. We know from observation and from continuous tradition that the first and the second of the cultivated zones have less civilization than the other zones. 
The cultivated area in the first and second zones is interspersed with empty waste areas and sandy deserts and has the Indian Ocean to the east. The nations and populations of the first and second zones are not excessively numerous, the same applies to the cities and towns there. The third, fourth, and subsequent zones are just the opposite, waste areas there are few, sandy deserts also are few or non-existent. The nations and populations are tremendous, cities and towns are exceedingly numerous, civilization has its seat between the third and the sixth zones, the south is all emptiness. Many philosophers have mentioned that this is because of the excessive heat and slightness of the sun's deviation from the zenith in the south. Let us explain and prove this statement. The result will clarify the reason why civilization in the third and fourth zones is so highly developed and extends also to the fifth and seventh zones. We say, when the south and north poles, of heaven, are upon the horizon, they constitute a large circle that divides the firmament into two parts. It is the largest circle, in it, and runs from west to east, it is called the equinoctial line, in astronomy, it has been explained in the proper place that the highest sphere moves from east to west in a daily motion by means of which it also forces the spheres enclosed by it to move. This motion is perceptible to the senses, it has also been explained that the stars in their spheres have a motion that is contrary to this motion and is, therefore, a motion from west to east. The periods of this movement differ according to the different speeds of the motions of the stars. Parallel to the courses of all these stars in their spheres, there runs a large circle which belongs to the highest sphere and divides it into two halves. This is the ecliptic, zodiac, it is divided into twelve signs, as has been explained in the proper place, the equinoctial line intersects the ecliptic at two opposite points, namely, at the beginning of Aries and at the beginning of Libra. The equinoctial line divides the zodiac into two halves, one of them extends northward from the equinoctial line and includes the signs from the beginning of Aries to the end of Virgo, the other half extends southward from it and includes the signs from the beginning of Libra to the end of Pisces, when the two poles fall upon the horizon among all the regions of the earth, a line is formed upon the surface of the earth that faces the equinoctial line and runs from west to east. This line is called the equator. According to astronomical observation, this line is believed to coincide with the beginning of the first of the seven zones. All civilization is to the north of it. The North Pole gradually ascends on the horizon of the cultivated area, of the Earth, until its elevation reaches 64 degrees. Here, all civilization ends. This is the end of the seventh zone, when its elevation reaches 90 degrees on the horizon, that is the distance between the pole and the equinoctial line then it is at its zenith, and the equinoctial line is on the horizon. Six of the signs of the zodiac, the northern ones, remain above the horizon, and six, the southern ones, are below it. Civilization is impossible in the area between the 64th and the 90th degrees, for no admixture of heat and cold occurs there because of the great time interval between them. Generation, of anything, therefore, does not take place. The sun is at its zenith on the equator at the beginning of Aries and Libra. It then declines from its zenith down to the beginning of Cancer and Capricorn. Its greatest declination from the equinoctial line is 24 degrees. Now, when the North Pole ascends on the horizon, the equinoctial line declines from the zenith in proportion to the elevation of the North Pole, and the South Pole descends correspondingly, as regards the three, 
distances constituting geographical latitude. Scholars who calculate the prayer times call this the latitude of a place. When the equinoctial line declines from the zenith, the northern signs of the zodiac gradually rise above it, proportionately to its rise, until the beginning of Cancer is reached. Meanwhile, the southern signs of the zodiac correspondingly descend below the horizon until the beginning of Capricorn is reached, because of the inclination of the two halves of the zodiac, upwards or downwards from the horizon of the equator, as we have stated. The northern horizon continues to rise, until its northern limit, which is the beginning of Cancer, is in the zenith. This is where the latitude is 24 degrees in the high jars and the territory adjacent. This is the declination from the equinoctial at the horizon of the equator at the beginning of Cancer. With the elevation of the North Pole, Cancer, rises, until it attains the zenith. When the pole rises more than 24 degrees, the Sun descends from the zenith and continues to do so until the elevation of the pole is 64 degrees, and the Sun's descent from the zenith, as well as the depression of the South Pole under the horizon, is the same distance. Then, generation, of anything, stops because of the excessive cold and frost and the long time without any heat, at and nearing its zenith, the Sun sends its rays down upon the Earth at right angles, in other positions, it sends them down at obtuse or acute angles. When the rays form right angles, the light is strong and spreads out over a wide area, in contrast to what happens in the case of obtuse and acute angles. Therefore, at and nearing its zenith, the heat is greater than in other positions, because the light of the sun is the reason for heat and calefaction. The sun reaches its zenith at the equator twice a year in two points of Aries and Libra. No declination of the sun goes very far. The heat hardly begins to become more temperate, when the Sun has reached the limit of its declination at the beginning of Cancer or Capricorn and begins to rise again toward the zenith. The perpendicular rays then fall heavily upon the horizon there, in these regions, and hold steady for a long time, if not permanently. The air gets burning hot, even excessively so. The same is true whenever the Sun reaches the zenith in the area between the equator and latitude 24 degrees, as it does twice a year. The rays exercise almost as much force upon the horizon there, at this latitude, as they do at the equator. The excessive heat causes a parching dryness in the air that prevents any generation. As the heat becomes more excessive, water and all kinds of moisture dry up, and the power of generation is destroyed in minerals plants, and animals, because, all, generation depends on moisture. Now, when the beginning of Cancer declines from the zenith at the latitude of 25 degrees and beyond, the Sun also declines from its zenith. The heat becomes temperate, or deviates only slightly from, being temperate, then, generation can take place. This goes on until the cold becomes excessive, due to the lack of light and the obtuse angles of the rays of the Sun. Then, the power of, generation again decreases and is destroyed. However, the destruction caused by great heat is greater than that caused by great cold, because heat brings about desiccation faster than cold brings about freezing. Therefore, there is little civilization in the first and second zones. There is a medium degree of civilization in the third, fourth, and fifth zones, because the heat there is temperate owing to the decreased amount of light. There is a great deal of civilization in the 6th and 7th zones because of the decreased amount of heat there. At first, cold does not have the same destructive effect upon, the power of, generation as heat, 
it causes desiccation only when it becomes excessive and thus has dryness added. This is the case beyond the seventh zone. All, this, then, is the reason why civilization is stronger and more abundant in the northern quarter, and God knows better, the philosophers concluded from these facts that the region at the equator and beyond it, to the south, was empty, on the strength of observation and continuous tradition, it was argued against them that, to the contrary, it was cultivated. How would it be possible to prove this, contention, it is obvious that the, philosophers, did not mean to deny entirely the existence of civilization there, but their argumentation led them to, the realization, that, the power of, generation must, to a large degree, be destroyed there because of the excessive heat. Consequently, civilization there would be either impossible, or only minimally possible. This is so, the region at the equator and beyond it, to the south, even if it has civilization as has been reported, has only a very little of it. Averroes assumed that the equator is in a symmetrical position and that what is beyond the equator to the south corresponds to what is beyond it to the north, consequently, as much of the south would be cultivated as of the north. His assumption is not impossible, so far as, the argument of, the destruction of the power of generation is concerned. However, as to the region south of the equator, it is made impossible by the fact that the element of water covers the face of the earth in the south, where the corresponding area in the north admits of generation. On account of the greater amount of water, in the south, Averroes' assumption of the symmetrical, position of the equator, thus turns out to be impossible. Everything else follows, since civilization progresses gradually and begins its gradual progress where it can exist, not where it cannot exist. The assumption that civilization cannot exist at the equator is contradicted by continuous tradition, and God knows better. After this discussion, we wish to draw a map of the earth, as was done by the author of the book of Roger. Then, we shall give a detailed description of the map. Detailed description of the map. This description is twofold. There is a detailed description and a general description. The detailed description consists of a discussion of each country, mountain, sea, and river of the cultivated part of the earth. This discussion will be found in the following section. The general description consists of a discussion of the division of the cultivated part of the earth into seven zones, their latitudinal, extension, and the length of their days. Such is the contents of this section. Let us begin to explain these things. We have mentioned before that the earth floats upon the elemental water like a grape. God's plan for civilization and for the elemental generation of life resulted in making part of, the earth free of water. The part that is free of water is said to constitute one-half the surface of the earth, the cultivated part is one-fourth of it, the rest is uncultivated. According to another opinion, the cultivated part is only one-sixth of it, the empty areas of the part which is free of water lie to the south and to the north, the cultivated area in between forms a continuum that stretches from west to east, there is no empty area between the cultivated part and the, surrounding, see in these two directions, they further said, across the cultivated part of the earth an imaginary line runs from west to east facing the equinoctial line, of the firmament, in regions where the two poles of the firmament are on the horizon. At this line civilization begins, it extends from there northwards, Ptolemy said, as a matter of fact, civilization extends beyond that line to the south, he indicated the latitudinal extension, as will be mentioned, Ishak b. 
Al-Hassana al-Khazini expresses the opinion that beyond the seventh zone, to the north, there is another civilization, he indicated its latitudinal extension, as we shall. Further, the ancient philosophers divided the cultivated part of the earth in the north into seven zones by means of imaginary lines running from west to east. They maintain that these zones have different latitudinal extensions, this will be discussed in detail. The first zone runs along the equator, north of it, south of it, there is only the civilization to which reference was made by Ptolemy. Beyond that are waste regions and sandy deserts, up to the circle of water which is called the surrounding sea. To the north, the first zone is followed, successively, by the second through the seventh zones. The seventh zone, constitutes the northern limit of civilization. Beyond it are only empty and waste regions, down to the surrounding sea as, in the south. However, the empty regions in the south are much larger than those in the north. As to latitudes and length of days in the various zones, it should be known that the two poles of the firmament are upon the horizon at the equator in the west and the east. It should be known that, as was mentioned above, the philosophers divided the cultivated part of the earth into seven parts from south to north. These parts they called zones. The whole of the cultivated area is distributed over these zones. Each zone extends from west to east. The first zone runs from west to east with the equator as its southern border. Beyond it, there are only waste regions and sandy deserts, and civilization of a sort that, if it actually exists, is more like non-civilization. To the north, the first zone is followed, successively, by the second through the seventh zones. The seventh zone constitutes the northern limit of civilization. Beyond it, to the north, are only empty and waste regions until the surrounding sea is reached. The situation is the same here as it is beyond the first zone to the south. However, the empty areas in the north are much smaller than those in the south. The sun there is at the zenith. As we follow the cultivated part of the earth farther and farther north, the North Pole ascends slightly, and the South Pole descends correspondingly, at the horizon. Furthermore, the Sun moves a corresponding distance from, its zenith at, the equinoctial line. These three distances are equal to each other. Each of them is called geographical latitude. This is well known to the scholars who determine the, prayer, times. People hold different opinions as to the latitudinal extension, of the cultivated part of the Earth and as to the latitudinal extension, breadth, of the various zones. Ptolemy holds the opinion that the latitudinal extension of the entire cultivated part of the earth is 77 halves, the latitudinal extension of the cultivated part beyond the equator to the south is 11. Thus, the latitudinal extension of the zones in the north is 66 halves. According to him, the first zone extends to 16, the second to 20, the third to 27, the fourth to 33, the 5th to 38, the 6th to 43, the 7th to 48. He then determined the degree on the firmament as having a length of 66 thirds miles, were it to be, measured on the surface of the earth. Thus, the first zone from south to north is 1067 miles, wide, the second zone, 2333 miles, the third zone, 2790 miles, the fourth zone, 2185 miles, the 5th zone, 2520 miles, the 6th zone, 2840 miles, and the 7th zone, 3150 miles.
the length of night and day differs in the various zones by reason of the declination of the sun from the equinoctial line and the elevation of the north pole above the horizon. This causes a difference in the arcs of day and night. The length of night and day dies in the different zones by reason of the declination of the sun from the equinoctial line and the elevation of the north pole above the horizon. This causes a difference in the arcs of day and night. At the boundary of the first zone, the longest night which occurs when the sun enters Capricorn and the longest day which occurs when the sun enters Cancer reach a maximum of 13 hours. The same is the case at the boundary of the second zone in the north. The length of day there reaches its maximum of 13 and one half hours when the sun enters Cancer, the summer tropic. The longest night when the sun enters Capricorn, the winter tropic is as long. For the shortest day and night, there thus remains the difference between 13 and one half and 24, which is the combined number of hours of day and night, or one complete revolution of the firmament. The same is the case also at the boundary of the third zone in the north, where night and day reach a maximum length of 14 hours, at the boundary of the fourth zone, where they reach a maximum length of 14 and one half hours, at the boundary of the fifth zone, where they reach a maximum length of 15 hours, at the boundary of the sixth zone, where they reach a maximum length of 15 and one half hours, and at the boundary of the seventh zone, where they reach a maximum length of 16 hours. There, civilization ends. The difference in the maximum length of night and day in the various zones, consequently, is an evenly distributed, gradual increase of half an hour in each, all the way from the first zone in the south to the last zone in the north. In connection with these zones, Geographical latitude refers to the distance between the sun at its zenith in a given place and the equinoctial line where it is at the zenith on the equator. It likewise corresponds to the depression of the south pole below the horizon in that particular place, as well as to the elevation of the north pole. As was mentioned before, these three distances are equal to each other. They are called geographical latitude. At the boundary of the first zone, the longest night which occurs when the sun enters Capricorn, and the longest day which occurs when the sun enters Cancer reach, according to Ptolemy, a maximum of 12 and one half hours, at the boundary of the second zone, a maximum of 13 hours, at the boundary of the third zone, a maximum of 13 and one half hours, at the boundary of the fourth zone, a maximum of 14 hours, at the boundary of the fifth zone, a maximum of one half hour more, at the boundary of the sixth zone a maximum of 15 hours, and at the boundary of the seventh zone, a maximum of one half hour more. For the shortest day and night, there thus remains the difference between the last figure and 24, which is the combined number of hours of day and night, or one complete revolution of the firmament. The difference in the maximum length of night and day in the various zones, consequently, is an evenly distributed, gradual increase of half an hour in each, all the way from the first zone in the south to the last zone in the north. Ishak B. Al-Hassan al-Khazini maintains that the latitudinal extension of civilization beyond the equator, to the south, is 1625, and the longest night and day there, 13 hours. The latitudinal extension of the first zone and the length of day and night there are the same as beyond the equator, to the south. The second zone extends to 24 degrees, and the length of its, longest, day and night at its farthest point is 13 and one half hours. For the third zone, the figures are 30 and 14 hours. For the fourth zone, they are 36 and 14 and one half hours. For the fifth zone, 
they are 41 and 15 hours. For the sixth zone, they are 45 and 15 and one half hours. For the seventh zone, they are 48 halves and 16 hours. The latitudinal extension of civilization beyond the seventh zone, to the north, reaches from the boundary of the seventh zone to latitude 63, and the length of the longest day and night to 20 hours. Other leading scholars in the discipline, apart from Ishak al-Khazini, maintain that the latitudinal extension of the cultivated area beyond the equator, to the south, is 1627. The first zone extends to 2015, the second to 2713, the third to 3320, the fourth to 38 halves, the fifth to 43, the sixth to 4753, or, according to another opinion, to 4650, and the seventh to 5153. Civilization beyond the seventh zone extends to 77. In Abu Jafar al-Khazini, one of the leading scholars in the discipline, one also finds that the latitudinal extension of the first zone is from 1 to 2013, of the second, to 2713, of the third, to 33 degrees 39, of the fourth, to 38 degrees 23, of the fifth, to 4258, of the sixth, to 472, and of the seventh, to 60 degrees and 45 minutes. This is as much as I know about the different opinions concerning latitudinal extension and length of day and night in the zones and concerning their width as indicated in miles. God created everything, then, he determined it, the geographers have subdivided each of the seven zones lengthwise from west to east in ten equal sections, they mention the countries, cities, mountains, and rivers of each section, and the traveling distances between them. We shall now briefly summarize the best-known countries, rivers, and seas of each section. Our model will be the data set forth in the Nuzat al-Mushtaq which al-Alawi al-Idrizi al-Hamudi composed for the Christian king of Sicily, Roger, the son of Roger. Al-Idrizi's family had given up its rule of Malaga, and he had settled at Roger's court in Sicily. He composed the book in the middle of the 6th, 12th century. He utilized many books by authors such as Al-Masudi, Ibn Qaradabai, Al-Hawgali, Al-Yuri, Ishaq Al-Munajan, Ptolemy and others. We shall begin with the first zone and go on from there to the last one. The first zone. The Eternal Islands, the Canaries, from which Ptolemy began the determination of geographical longitude, are in the west. They are not part of the land mass of the first zone. They lie in the surrounding sea, a number of islands constitute them, the largest and best known are three in number, they are said to be cultivated, we have heard that European Christian ships reached them in the middle of this century, fought with their, inhabitants, plundered them, captured some of them, and sold some of the captives along the Moroccan coast where they came into the service of the ruler. After they had learned Arabic, they gave information about conditions on their island, they said that they tilled the soil with horns, iron was lacking in their country, their bread was made of barley, their animals were goats, they fought with stones, which they hurled backwards, their worship consisted of prostrations before the rising sun, they knew no, revealed, religion and had not been reached by any missionary activity, these islands can be reached only by chance, and not intentionally by navigation, navigation on the sea depends on the winds, it depends on knowledge of the directions the winds blow from and where they lead, and on following a straight course from the places that lie along the path of a particular wind. When the wind changes and it is known where a straight course along it will lead, 
the sails are set for it, and the ship thus sails according to nautical norms evolved by the mariners and sailors who are in charge of sea voyages. The countries situated on the two shores of the Mediterranean are noted on a chart, Sahifa, which indicates the true facts regarding them and gives their positions along the coast in the proper order. The various winds and their paths are likewise put down on the chart. This chart is called the compass, fit it is on this, compass, that, sailors, rely on their voyages, nothing of the sort exists for the surrounding sea, therefore, ships do not enter it, because, were they to lose sight of shore, they would hardly be able to find their way back to it. Moreover, the air of the surrounding sea and its surface harbors vapors that hamper ships on their courses, because of the remoteness of these, vapors, the rays of the sun which the surface of the earth deflects, cannot reach and dissolve them. It is, therefore, difficult to find the way to, the eternal islands, and to have information about them. The first section of the first zone contains the mouth of the Nile which has its origin at the mountain of the Korma, as we have mentioned. This Nile, is called the Sudanese Nile, it flows toward the surrounding sea and into it at the island of Orlil, the city of Salah, Tukra, and Ghana are situated along this Nile, at this time, all of them belong to the Mali people, a Negro nation, Moroccan merchants travel to their country, close to it in the north is the country of the Lumchana and of the other groups of the veiled Berbers, Sinhaya, as well as the deserts in which they roam. To the south of this Nile, there is a Negro people called Lamlam, they are unbelievers, they brand themselves on the face and temples, the people of Ghana and Tukra invade their country, capture them, and sell them to merchants who transport them to the Maghrib, there, they constitute the ordinary mass of slaves, beyond them to the south, there is no civilization in the proper sense, there are only humans who are closer to dumb animals than to rational beings, they live in thickets and caves and eat herbs and unprepared grain, they frequently eat each other, they cannot be considered human beings, all the fruits of the Negro territory come from fortified villages in the desert of the Maghrib, such as Tuat, Tawat, Tavat, Tigurin, and Oagla, Wargalan. In Ghana, an elite king and dynasty are said to have existed. These elites were known as the Banu Sali. According to the author of the Book of Roger, Sali was Sali B. Abdallah B. Hassan B. Al-Hassan, but no such Sali is known among the sons of Abdallah B. Hassan. At this time the dynasty has disappeared, and Ghana belongs to the Mali ruler. To the east of this territory, in the third section of the first zone, is the territory of Gorgor. It lies along a river that has its origin in certain mountains there, flows westward, and disappears in the sand in the second section. The realm of Gorgor was independent, the Mali ruler then gained power over the territory, and it came into his possession. At this time it is devastated as the result of a disturbance that happened there and that we shall mention when we discuss the Mali dynasty in its proper place in the history of the Berbers. To the south of the country of Gorgor lies the territory of Kanem, a Negro nation beyond them are the Wangara on the border of the Sudanese Nile, to the north. To the east of the countries of the Wangara and the Kanem, there is the country of the Zaghe and the Tajira, adjoining the land of the Nubar in the fourth section of the first zone. The land of the Nubar is traversed by the Egyptian Nile throughout its course from its beginning at the equator to the Mediterranean in the north. This Nile originates at the mountain of the QMR, 16 degrees above the equator. There are different opinions as to the correct form of the name of this mountain. 
Some scholars read the name as Kamar Moon, because the mountain is very white and luminous. Yokit, in the Mushdarik, as well as Ibn Sa apostrophe I dot D, reads Kaur, with reference to an Indian people. Ten springs issue from this mountain. Five of them flow into one lake and five into another lake. There is a distance of six miles between the two lakes. From each of the two lakes, three rivers come forth. They come together in a swampy lake, Batia, at the foot of which a mountain emerges. This mountain cuts across the lake at the northern end and divides its waters into two branches. The western branch flows westward through the Negro territory and finally flows into the surrounding sea. The eastern branch flows northward through the countries of the Abyssinians and the Nubar and the region in between. At the boundary of Egypt, it divides. Three of its branches flow into the Mediterranean at Alexandria, at Rosetta, and at Dumyat. One flows into a salt lake before reaching the sea. In the middle of the first zone along the Nile, lie the countries of the Nubar and the Abyssinians and some of the oases down to Aswan. A settled part of the Nubar country is the city of Dongola, west of the Nile. Beyond it are Ulwa and Ulak. Beyond them, a six days journey north of Ulak, is the mountain of the Cataracts. This is a mountain which rises to a great height on the Egyptian side, but is much less elevated on the side of the country of the Nubar. The Nile cuts through it and flows down precipitately in tremendous cascades for a long distance. Boats cannot get through. Cargoes from the Sudanese boats are taken off and carried on pack animals to Aswan at the entrance to Upper Egypt. In the same way, the cargoes of the boats from Upper Egypt are carried over the cataracts. The distance from the cataracts to Aswan is a 12 days journey. The oases on the west bank of the Nile there are now in ruins. They show traces of ancient settlement. In the middle of the first zone, in its fifth section, is the country of the Abyssinians, through which a river flows, which comes from beyond the equator and flows toward the land of the Nubar, where it flows into the Nile and so on down into Egypt. Many people have held fantastic opinions about it and thought that it was part of the Nile of the Kung, Mountain of the Moon. Ptolemy mentioned it in the geography, he mentioned that it did not belong to the Nile. In the middle of the first zone, in the fifth section, the Indian Ocean terminates. It comes down from the region of China and covers most of the first zone to the fifth section. Consequently, there is not much civilization there. Civilization exists only on the islands in the Indian Ocean, which are numerous and said to number up to 1,000. Civilization also exists on the southern coast of the Indian Ocean, the southernmost limit of the cultivated part of the Earth, as also on its northern coast. Of these coasts, the first zone contains only a part of China to the east and the whole of the Yemen in the sixth section of this zone, where two seas branch off northwards from the Indian Ocean, namely, the Red Sea, Sea of Al-Qiyam, and the Persian Gulf. Between them lies the Arabian Peninsula, comprising the Yemen, Ash-Shir to the east on the shore of the Indian Ocean, the Hijaz, the Yamima, and adjacent regions which we shall mention in connection with the second zone and the regions farther north. On the western shore of the Indian Ocean is Zila, Zila, which is on the boundary of Abyssinia, and the desert plains of the Beja north of Abyssinia, which lie between the mountain of Al-Alaki in the southernmost part of Upper Egypt and the Red Sea which branches off from the Indian Ocean. North of Zila, Zila, in the northern part of this section is the Straits of Bib al-Mandeb, where the sea that branches off there is narrowed by the promontory of Al-Mandeb which juts into the Indian Ocean from south to north along the west coast of the Yemen for 12 miles. 
As a result, the sea becomes so narrow that its width shrinks to approximately 3 miles. This is called Bib al-Mandeb. Yemenite ships pass it on their way to the coast of Suez near Egypt, Cairo. North of Bib al-Mandeb are the islands of Suakin and Dalak. Opposite it to the west are the desert plains of the Beja, a Negro nation, as we have just mentioned. To the east, on the coast of, the Straits of Bib al-Mandeb, is the Timer of the Yemen. It includes the place of Haley B. Yagub. To the south of Zila, Zila, on the western coast of the Indian Ocean are the villages of Berbera which extend one after the other all along the southern coast of the Indian Ocean, to the end of the sixth section. There, to the east, the country of the Zanj adjoins them. Then comes the city of Mogadishu, a very popular city with many merchants, yet nomad in character, on the southern coast of the Indian Ocean. Adjoining it to the east is the country of the Sufila on the southern coast in the seventh section of the first zone. East of the country of the Sufila on the southern shore, lies the country of Al-Wikik which stretches to the end of the tenth section of the first zone, where the Indian Ocean comes out of the surrounding sea. There are many islands in the Indian Ocean. One of the largest islands is the island of Ceylon, Sandeep, which is round in shape and has a famous mountain said to be the highest mountain on earth. It lies opposite Sufila. Then, there is the island of Java, Malay Archipelago, an oblong island that begins opposite the land of Sufila and extends northeastward until it approaches the coasts that constitute China's southern boundary. In the Indian Ocean, to the south China is surrounded by the islands of Al-Wikfak, and to the east by the islands of Korea. There are numerous other islands in the Indian Ocean. These islands produce different kinds of perfumes and incense. They also are said to contain gold and emerald mines. Most of their inhabitants are Majans. They have numerous rulers. These islands present remarkable cultural features that have been mentioned by geographers. The northern coast of the Indian Ocean, in the sixth section of the first zone, is occupied by the whole of the Yemen. On the Red Sea side lies Ubaid, Al-Majam, and the Tihama of the Yemen. Next beyond that is Sadar, the seat of the Zaidi Imams, lying far from the Indian Ocean to the south, and from the Persian Gulf to the east. In the region beyond that of the city of Aden and, north of it, Sana. Beyond these two cities, to the east, is the land of Al-Okof and Zed, Afar. Next comes the land of Hadramaut, followed by the country of Ash-Shir between the Indian Ocean in the south and the Persian Gulf. This part of the sixth section is the only part that is not covered by water in the middle region of the first zone. Apart from it, a small portion of the ninth section is not covered by water, as well as a larger area in the tenth section that includes the southernmost limit of China. One of China's famous cities is the city of Canton. Opposite it to the east are the islands of Korea, which have just been mentioned. This concludes the discussion of the first zone. The second zone. The second zone is contiguous with the northern boundary of the first zone. Opposite its western limit, in the surrounding sea are two of the eternal islands, which have been mentioned. At the southernmost part of the first and second sections of the second zone, there is the land of Camoria. Then, to the east, there are the southernmost parts of the land of Ghana. Then, there are the desert plains of the Zaghe Negros. In the northernmost part, there is the desert of Nisar. It extends uninterruptedly from west to east. It has stretches of desert which are crossed by merchants on their way from the Maghrib to the Sudan country. It includes the desert plains of the veiled Sinhaya Berbers. There are many subgroups, 
comprising the Gudala, the Lunchana, the Maswafa, the Lantar, and the Watriga. Directly to the east of the waste regions is the land of Fizon. Then, there are the desert plains of the Asgar, a Berber tribe, which extend due east in the southernmost part of the third section. This is followed, still in the third section, by part of the country of Kawa, a Negro nation. Then, there is a portion of the land of Atajawin. The northernmost part of the third section is occupied by the remainder of the land of Wadin, followed directly to the east by the land of Santa Raya, which is called the Inner Oasis. The southernmost limit of the fourth section is occupied by the remainder of the land of Atajawin. The middle of the fourth section, then, is intersected by Upper Egypt along the banks of the Nile, which flows from its source in the first zone to its mouth at the sea. In this section it passes through two mountain barriers, the mountain of the oasis in the west, and the Mukatam in the east. At the southern part of the section lie Esna and Armant, there is a continuous riverbank region up to a certain coast, and then to Sol. There, the Nile divides into two branches, the right branch ends up at Al-Lahun, still in the fourth section, the left branch ends up at Dalas, the region between them is the southernmost part of, Lower, Egypt. East of Mount Mugatam are the deserts of Adhab, extending from the fifth section to the Sea of Suez, that is, the Red Sea, Sea of Al-Qiyam, which branches off northwards from the Indian Ocean to the south. On the eastern shore of the Red Sea, in the same section, is the Hijaz, extending from the mountain of Yalamlam to Yathrib, Medina. In the middle of the Hijaz is Mecca God Honorit. And on its seashore there is the city of Jiddah, which is opposite Adhab on the western shore of the Red Sea. In the sixth section to the west is the Najd, having as its southernmost limit Jurash and Tabala, and extending, up to Yukaz in the north. North of the Najd, in the sixth section, is the remainder of the Hijaz. Directly to the east of, the Najd, lies the country of Najran and Janad. North of that is the Yamama. Directly to the east of Najran, there is the land of Saba and Marib, followed by the land of Ash-Shir, which ends at the Persian Gulf. This is the other sea that branches off northward from the Indian Ocean, as has been mentioned, and turns westward on its course in the sixth section. The northeastern area of, the sixth section, constitutes a triangle. At its southernmost part is the city of Kalhat, the coast, seaport, of Ash-Shir. North of it, on the coast, is the country of Oman, followed by the country of Al-Bahrain with Hoja, at the end of the, sixth, section. The southwestern part of the seventh section contains a portion of the Persian Gulf connecting with the other portion of it in the sixth section. The Indian Ocean covers all the southernmost area of the seventh section. There, western India lies along it, up to the country of Mukran which belongs to western India. Opposite it, is the country of Atorbrun which also belongs to western India. All of western India lies in the western part of the seventh section. Western India is separated from eastern India by stretches of desert, and is traversed by a river, the Indus, which comes from eastern India and flows into the Indian Ocean in the south. Eastern India begins on the shore of the Indian Ocean. Directly to the east there lies the country of Balara. North of it is Multan, the home of the Great Idol. The northernmost part of eastern India is the southernmost part of the country of Schistan. The western part of the eighth section contains the remainder of the country of Balara that belongs to eastern India. Directly to the east of it lies the country of Gandhara. Then, at the southernmost part, of the section, on the shore of the Indian Ocean, there is the country of Malabar, Nunibar, 
North of it, in the northernmost part of the section, there is the country of Kabul. Beyond Kabul, to the east is the territory of the Kanauj, between inner and outer Kashmir at the end of the zone. The ninth section, in its western part, contains farthest eastern India, which extends to the eastern part of the section and stretches along its southernmost part up to the tenth section. In the northernmost part here, there is a portion of China, it includes the city of Kagan. China then extends over the whole tenth section up to the surrounding sea. Third Zone The third zone is contiguous with the northern boundary of the second zone. The first section, about one-third of the way from the southernmost part of the zone, contains the Atlas Mountain which runs from the western part of the first section at the surrounding sea to the eastern end of the section. This mountain is inhabited by innumerable Berber nations, as will be mentioned. In the region between this mountain and the second zone, at the surrounding sea, there is the Rabat, Monastery, Misa. East of here are the adjoining countries of, Assus and Naun, Newell. Directly to the east of, these countries, is the country of Dara, followed by the country of Stilmasa and then by a portion of the desert of Nisa, the stretch of desert that we mentioned in describing the second zone. The Atlas Mountain towers over all these countries of the first section. The western region of the Atlas has few passes and roads but near the Maluya, Morwia, river, and from there on to where it ends, the Atlas has a great number of passes and roads. This region contains the Masnuda nations, at the surrounding sea the Saxwanwa, then the Hintatar, the Tinmalal, the Gidmiwa, and then the Haskura who are the last Masnuda in this area. Then there are the Zainagar, that is, the Sinhaja tribes. At the boundary of the first section of the third zone, there are some Zanatar tribes. To the north, Mount Uras, Loras, the mountain of the Kutama, adjoins, the Atlas. After that, there are other Berber nations which we shall mention in their proper places. The Atlas Mountain in the western part of the section towers over Morocco to the north of it. In the southern part of, Morocco, lie Marrakesh, Agmat, and Tadla. On the surrounding sea there, are the Rabat Asfi and the city of Sale, Salah. East of the country of Marrakesh lie Fez, Meknes, Taza, and Kaza Kutama. This is the area that is customarily called the farthest Maghrib, Morocco, by its inhabitants. On the shore of the surrounding sea in that region lie Arsila, Azila, and La Roche, Al-Arish. Directly to the east of this area, there is the country of the Middle Maghrib whose center is Clemson, Tylemsen. On the shores of the Mediterranean there, lie Hanain, Oran, and Algiers. The Mediterranean leaves the surrounding sea at the Straits of Tangier in the western part of the fourth zone, and then extends eastward to Syria. Shortly after it leaves the narrow straits, it widens to the south and to the north and enters the third and fifth zones. This is why many places within the third zone are on the Mediterranean coast, from Tangier up to Al-Khazar as Sagir, then Ceuta, the country of Badis, and Gassasa. Algiers, which comes next, is near Bougie, Bajia, on the east. Then, east of Bougie at the boundary of the first section is Constantine, a day's journey from the Mediterranean. South of these places, toward the south of the Middle Maghrib, is the territory of Ashia, with Mount Tijeri, followed by Mzala, Al-Masala, and the Zab. The center of, the Zab, is Biskra, north of Mount Uruz which connects with the Atlas, as has been mentioned. This is the eastern end of the first section. The second section of the third zone is like the first section in that about one-third of the distance from its southern, limit, 
lies the Atlas Mountain which extends across this section from west to east and divides it into two portions. The Mediterranean covers one area in the north. The portion south of the Atlas Mountain is all desert to the west. To the east, there is Gadamis. Directly to the east of this portion is the land of Wadden, the remainder of which is situated in the second zone, as has been mentioned. The portion north of the Atlas Mountain between the Atlas and the Mediterranean contains in the west Mountaras, Tebessa, and Larabus, Alabus. On the seacoast is Bone, Muna. Directly east of these places lies the country of Ifkia, with the city of Tunis, then Sous, Susa, and Almachia on the seacoast. South of these places and north of the Atlas Mountain, is the country of the Jirid, Jarid, Al-Jarid, Toza, Tazar, Gafsa, Kafsa, and Nafoua, Mufsawa. Between them and the coast is the city of Kairun, Al-Kairawan, Mount Uslat, Auslat, Waslat, and Spiatla, Subatila. Directly east of these places lies Tripoli on the Mediterranean. Facing it in the south are the mountains of the Horwera tribes, Damar, Mount Dema, and Makara, the city of Magara, which connect with the Atlas and are opposite Gadamis which we mentioned at the end of the southern portion. At the eastern end of the second section lies Suwaykart ibn Mathkud on the sea. To the south are the desert plains of the Arabs in the land of Wadden. The third section of the third zone is also traversed by the Atlas Mountain, but at the limit of the section, the Atlas turns northward and runs due north up to the Mediterranean. There, it is called Cape Orthon. The Mediterranean covers the northern part of the third section, so that the land between it and the Atlas narrows. Behind the mountain to the southwest, there is the remainder of the land of Wadden and the desert plains of the Arabs. Then, there is Zawilat ibn Katab, followed by sandy deserts and waste regions to the eastern boundary of the section. To the west of the area between the mountain and the sea, there is Sirt, Sirt, at the sea. Then, there are empty and waste regions in which the Arabs roam. Then, there is Idabia and, where the mountain makes a turn, Barsa, Barca. Next comes Tulemitha, Ptolemaeus, on the sea. Then, to the east of the mountain, after it makes the turn, are the desert plains of the Hayyib and the Ruwaha, which extend to the end of the section. The southwestern part of the fourth section of the third zone contains the desert of Berenice. North of it is the country of the Hayyib and the Ruwaha. Then, the Mediterranean enters this section and covers part of it in a southern direction almost to the southern boundary. Between it and the end of the section, there remains a waste region through which the Arabs roam. Directly to the east of it is the Fayum, at the mouth of one of the two branches of the Nile. This branch passes by Al-Lafin in Upper Egypt, in the fourth section of the zone, and flows into the lake of the Fayum. Directly to the east of, the Fayum, is the land of Egypt with its famous city, Cairo, situated on the other branch of the Nile, the one that passes through Dalas in Upper Egypt at the boundary of the second section. This latter branch divides A.I., Log second time into two more branches below Cairo, at Shatnorf and Zifta H. The right branch again divides into two other branches at Tarnut. All these branches flow into the Mediterranean. At the mouth of the western branch is Alexandria, at the mouth of the middle branch is Rosetta, and at the mouth of the eastern branch is Dumyat. Between Cairo and the Mediterranean coast at these points lies the whole of northern Egypt, which is densely settled and cultivated. The fifth section of the third zone contains all or most of Syria, as I shall describe it. The Red Sea ends in the southwest of the section, 
at Suez, because in its course from the Indian Ocean northward, it turns eventually westward. A long portion of its western extension lies in this section, with Suez at its western end. Beyond Suez, on this part of the Red Sea, there are the mountains of Paran, Foran, Mount Sinai at Tur, Isla, Ayla in Midian, Modun, and, where it ends, Al Hora. From there, its shoreline turns southward towards the land of the Hijaz, as has been mentioned in connection with the fifth section of the second zone. A portion of the Mediterranean covers much of the northwestern part of the fifth section, on its coast, lie Al-Farama and Al-Arish. The end of this portion of the Mediterranean comes close to Al-Qiyam. The area in between there is narrow. It becomes a kind of gate leading into Syria. West of this gate is the desert plain, at Tai, a bare country in which nothing grows, where the Israelites wandered for forty years after they had left Egypt and before they entered Syria, as the Quran tells. In this portion of the Mediterranean, in the fifth section, lies part of the island of Cyprus. The remainder, of Cyprus, lies in the fourth zone, as we shall mention, along the coastline of that narrow strip of land between the Mediterranean and the Red Sea, Aralarish, the boundary of Egypt, and Ascalon. Between them, there is a, narrow, strip of land, separating the Mediterranean and, the Red Sea. Then, this portion of the Mediterranean turns to the north into the fourth zone at Tripoli and Arga. That is the eastern end of the Mediterranean. This portion of the Mediterranean comprises most of the Syrian coast. East and slightly to the north of Ascalon, is Caesarea. Then, in the same general direction, are Akko, Tyre, Sidon, and Arca. The sea then turns north into the fourth zone. Opposite these places on the coast of this portion of the Mediterranean, in the fifth section, there is a big mountain which rises from the coast at Isla, Ayla, on the Red Sea. It runs northeastward until it leaves the fifth section. It is called Amanus al-Lukum. It is a kind of barrier between Egypt and Syria. At the one end, near Isla, Ayla, lies al-Aqabah which the pilgrims pass through on their way from Egypt to Mecca. After it, to the north, is Abraham's tomb at Mount Ash-Sharah which is a continuation of the aforementioned Amanus north of al-Aqabah. It extends due east, and then turns slightly, to the south. East of there is Al-Hijjah, the land of the Tamild, Tema, Tema, and Dumat al-Jandal, the northernmost part of the Hijaz. South of it is Mount Rodwa. Farther south, there are the castles of Kaibar. Between Mount Ash-Sharah and the Red Sea lies the desert of Tabuk. North of Mount Ash-Sharah is the city of Jerusalem near the Amanus. Then, there is the Jordan and Tiberias. East of it lies the Jordan, Depression, Gore, Algar, which extends to Adriat and the Horan. Directly to the east of the Horan is Dumat al-Jandal which constitutes the end of the Hijaz and the fifth section. Where the Amanus turns north at the end of the fifth section is the city of Damascus, opposite Sidon and Beirut on the coast. The Amanus lies between Sidon and Beirut, on the one hand, and Damascus, on the other. Directly east of Damascus and facing it, is the city of Baalbek. Then, there is the city of Amisa at the northern end of the fifth section, where the Amanus breaks off. East of Baalbek and Amisa are the city Palmyra and desert plains extending to the end of the fifth section. The southernmost part of the sixth section contains the desert plains of the Arab Bedouins, which are, 
located to the north of the Najd and the Yamima in the area between the mountain of Al-Arj and As-Samin and extending to Al-Bahrain and Hojar at the Persian Gulf. In the northernmost part of the sixth section, to the north of the desert plains, lie Al-Hira, Al-Kidisiyah, and the swampy lowlands of the Euphrates. Beyond that to the east is the city of Al-Basra. In the northeastern part of the sixth section, the Persian Gulf ends, at Abidin and Al-Ubula. The mouth of the Tigris is at Abidin. The Tigris divides into many branches and takes in other branches from the Euphrates. All of them come together at Abidin and flow into the Persian Gulf. This portion of the Persian Gulf is wide in the southernmost part of the section. It narrows toward its eastern boundary, and where it ends in the north it, also, is narrow. On the western coast lie the northernmost portion of Al-Bahrain, Hojar, and Al-Azhar. To the west of this portion of the Persian Gulf, lie Al-Khart, As-Samin, and the remainder of the land of the Yamima. The eastern coast comprises the shores of Fars. In their southernmost part, at the eastern end of the sixth section, along a line stretching from the Persian Gulf eastward and beyond it to the south, are the mountains of Al-Khurs which are in Kirman. North of Hermas on the coast of the Persian Gulf, are Syrif and Najiram. In the east, toward the end of the sixth section and north of Hermas, is the country of Firs, comprising, for instance, Sibir, Darabjurd, Farsi, Istakra, Ash-Shayajin, and Shays, the principal city. North of the country of Firs, at the end of the Persian Gulf, lies the country of Khuzistan which includes Alahuiz, Tustar, Jindishaba, Susa, Asus, Rimhamuz, and other cities. Arajin is on the boundary between Firs and Khuzistan. To the east of the country of Khuzistan are the Kurdish mountains, which extend to the region of Isfahan. The Kurds live there. They roam beyond the mountains into the country of Firs. They are called Azumam. The southwestern part of the seventh section contains the remainder of the mountains of Al-Khufs to which are adjacent in the south and north the countries of Kirman and Mokran. They include the cities of Arudan, Ash-Sharajan, Jiruft, Jayruft, Yazja, and Al-Faraj. North of the land of Kirman is the remainder of the country of Fars up to the border of Isfahan. The city of Isfahan lies in the northwest corner of the seventh section. East of the countries of Kirman and Firs, there is the land of Schistan to the south, and the land of Kuistan to the north. Between Kirman Firs and Schistan Kuistan, in the middle of this section, is the Great Desert which has few roads because of the difficult terrain. Cities in Schistan are Bust and Atik. Kuistan belongs to the country of Khorasan. One of Khorasan's best-known places is Sarix, on the boundary of the section. The eighth section contains, in the southwest, the plains of the Holoj, a Turkish nation. They adjoin the land of Schistan in the west and the land of Kabul of eastern India in the south. North of these desert plains are the mountains and country of Algar starting with Ghazna, the key to India. Where Algar ends in the north, lies Astarabad. Then, to the north is the country of Herat in the middle of Khurasan, extending to the boundary of the section. It includes Isfarayan, Shishan, Boshanj, Maro Arud, Atalakan, and Al-Juzajan. This part of Khurasan extends to the river Oxus. Khurasanyan places on this river are the city of Balk to the west, and the city of Atermi to the east. The city of Balk was the seat of the Turkish realm. The Oxus comes from the country of Wakan in the area of Badakhshan which borders on India, in the southeast corner of this section. It soon turns west to the middle of the section. There, it is called the Karnab River. It then turns north. 
passes Curasan, flows due north, and finally flows into Lake Aral in the fifth zone, as we shall mention. In the middle of the eighth section where it turns from the south to the north, five large rivers belonging to the country of Cuttle and Wakesh flow into it on the east. Other rivers, coming from the Buttam Mountains to the east and north of Cuttle, also flow into it. The Oxus, thus, becomes wider and larger, so much so that no other river equals it in these respects. One of the five rivers flowing into the Oxus is the Wakeshab which comes from the country of Tibet that extends over the southeastern portion of this section. It flows toward the northwest. Its course is blocked by a great mountain which runs from the middle of this section in the south toward the northeast, and leaves this section close to its northern boundary to pass into the ninth section. It crosses the country of Tibet toward the southeast portion of this section. It separates the Turks from the country of Kuthal. It has only one road in the middle of this section to the east, Al. Fatal B. Yahya constructed a dam there with a gate in it, like the dam of Gog and Magog. When the Wakeshab leaves the country of Tibet and comes up against that mountain, it flows under it for a long distance, until it enters the country of Wakesh and flows into the Oxus at the border of Balkh. The Oxus, then sweeps onto a termi in the north and flows into the country of al J. Isajan. East of the country of Alga, in the region between, this country, and the Oxus, is the country of Al-Bamiyan, which belongs to Khurasan. There on the eastern bank of the river is the country of Kuttal, most of which is mountainous, and the country of Waiksh. This is bordered in the north by the Buttam Mountains, which come from the border of Khurasan, west of the Oxus, and run eastward. Finally, where they end, a large mountain range begins, behind which lies the country of Tibet and under which there flows the Wakeshab, as we have stated. The two mountain ranges join at the gate of Alfadal B. Yahya, the Oxus passes between them, other rivers flow into it, among them the river of the country of Wakesh, which flows into it from the east, below at Termi in the north. The Borka River comes from the Buttam Mountains where it starts at Al-Juzarjan, and flows into it from the west. On the western bank of this river, Oxus, lies a mole, which belongs to Khurasan. East of this river, Oxus, are the lands of the Sogd and Yuzrashana, which belong to the country of the Turks. East of them is the land of Fargana, which extends to the eastern end of the section. The entire country of the Turks here is crossed by the Buttam Mountains on the north. In the western part of the ninth section lies the country of Tibet, up to the middle of the section. In the south is India, and in the east, to the boundary of the section, is China. In the northernmost part of this section, north of the country of Tibet, is the country of the Karluk, which belongs to the country of the Turks, extending to the northern boundary of the section. Adjacent to it on the west is the land of Fargana, and on the east is the land of the Turkish Tukhuzuts, extending to the northeastern end of the section. The southern part of the tenth section is entirely occupied by the remaining northernmost portion of China. In the north is the remainder of the country of the Tukhuzuts. East of them is the country of the Turkish Kyrgyz, extending to the eastern end of the section. North of the land of the Kyrgyz is the country of the Turkish Kimak. Opposite, the Kyrgyz and Kimak countries, in the surrounding sea, lies the Hyacinth, Ruby, island in the middle of a round mountain that completely blocks access to it. Climbing to the top of the mountain from the outside is extremely difficult. On the island, there are deadly snakes and many pebbles of hyacinth, ruby. The people of that region contrive to mine them with the help of divine inspiration. 
The regions in the 9th and 10th sections extending beyond Khurasan and Kutl are desert plains where innumerable Turkish nations roam. They are wandering nomads who have camels, sheep, cattle, and horses for breeding, riding, and eating. There are very many, indeed, innumerable groups. There are Muslims among them in the area adjacent to the Oxus. They make raids on the unbelievers among them, who follow the Magian religion. They sell their captives to their near, neighbors, who export them to Khurasan, India, and the Iraq. The Fourth Zone The fourth zone is contiguous with the northern part of the third, zone. Its first section, in the west, contains a portion of the surrounding sea which, oblong in shape, extends from the southern to the northern boundary of the section. The city of Tangier is situated on it in the south, north of Tangier, the Mediterranean branches off from this portion of the surrounding sea in a narrow straits that is only 12 miles wide, Tarifa and Alasiris, lying, to the north of it and Kaza al-Majaz and Suta to the south of it. It runs east until it reaches the middle of the fifth section of the fourth zone, gradually widening and eventually covering the, first, four sections and most of the fifth section of the fourth zone, as well as adjacent regions of the third and fifth zones, as we shall mention. The Mediterranean is also called the Syrian Sea. It contains many islands, the largest of them, from west to east, are Ibiza, Majorca, Menorca, Sardinia, Sicily which is the largest of them the Peloponnesos, Crete, and Cyprus. We shall mention each of them in its particular section, at the end of the third section of the fourth zone and in the third section of the fifth zone, the Adriatic Sea, Straits of the Venetians, branches off from the Mediterranean. It runs in a northern direction, then turns westward in the northern half of the section, and finally ends in the second section of the fifth zone. At the eastern boundary of the fourth section of the fifth zone, the Straits of Constantinople branches off from the Mediterranean. In the north, it makes a narrow passage only an arrow shot in width, extending up to the boundary of the zone and on into the fourth section of the sixth zone, where it turns into the Black Sea, running eastward across the whole of the fifth and half of the sixth, sections of the sixth zone, as we shall mention in the proper place. Where the Mediterranean leaves the surrounding sea through the Straits of Tangier and expands into the third zone, there remains a small portion of this section south of the Straits. The city of Tangier is situated in it, at the confluence of the two seas. After Tangier comes Suta on the Mediterranean, then Tetuan, Titouan, and Badis. The remainder of this section to the east is covered by the Mediterranean, which extends into the third, zone. Most of the cultivated area in this section is north of it and north of the Straits. All this is Spain, the western part of Spain, the area between the surrounding sea and the Mediterranean, begins at Tarifa, at the confluence of the two seas. East of it, on the shore of the Mediterranean, is Algeciras, followed by Malaga, Almuncar, and Almeria. Northwest of these cities and close to the surrounding sea, there is Yerath, de la Frontera, followed by Nibla. Opposite these two cities, in the surrounding sea, is the island of Cadiz. East of Yerath and Nibla are Sevilla, followed by Asija, Cordoba, and Marbella, then Granada, Hayen, and Ubeda, then Guadix and Baza. Northwest of these cities on the surrounding sea are Santa Maria and Silves. Northeast of these two cities are Badajoz, Merida, and Evera followed by Garfik and Trujillo, and then Colatrava. Northwest of these cities on the surrounding sea, there is Lisbon on the Tajo, 
east of Lisbon, on the Tajo, are Santarei and Coria, then, there is Alcantara, facing Lisbon on the east, there rises the Sierra, de Guadamar, which starts in the west there and runs eastward along the northern boundary of the section. It ends at Medina Sili beyond the middle of, the section, below, at the foot of, the Sierra, is Talavera, east of Coria, followed by Toledo, Guadalajara, and Medina Sili, where the Sierra begins, in the region between the Sierra and Lisbon, is Coimbra, this is western Spain, eastern Spain is bordered by the Mediterranean, here, Almeria is followed by Cartagena, Alicante, Denia, and Valencia, up to Tarragona at the eastern boundary of the section, north of these cities are Lorca and Segura, adjacent to Baza and Colatrava, which belong to western Spain, to the east, then, comes Mercia, followed by Hotiva north of Valencia, then Jucar, Tortosa, and Tarragona at the boundary of the section. Then, north of these cities, there are the lands of Chinchilla and Huete, which are adjacent to Segura and Toledo in the west, northeast of Tortosa, then, is Fraga, east of Medina Sili, there is Calatead, followed by Saragossa and Lerida at the northeastern end of the section. The second section of the fourth zone is entirely covered by water, except for a portion in the northwest which includes the remainder of the Pyrenees, the mountain of passes and roads. It comes there from the boundary of the first section of the fifth zone. It starts at the southeastern limit of the surrounding sea on the boundary of this section, runs southeastward, and enters the fourth zone upon leaving the first section for the second, so that a portion of it falls into the fourth zone. Its passes lead into the adjacent mainland, which is called the land of Gascogne. It contains the cities of Girona and Carcassonne. On the shores of the Mediterranean in this portion, is the city of Barcelona, followed by Narbonne. The sea which covers this section contains many islands, most of which are uninhabited because they are small. In the west, there is the island of Sardinia, and in the east the large island of Sicily. Its circumference is said to be 700 miles. It contains many cities, the best known among them being Syracuse, Palermo, Trapani, Mozzara, and Messina. Sicily is opposite Ifkia. Between Sicily and Ifkia are the islands of Gozzo and Malta. The third section of the fourth zone is also covered by the sea, except for three portions in the north. The one in the west belongs to the land of Calabria, the one in the middle to Lombardy, and the one in the east to the country of the Venetians. The fourth section of the fourth zone is also covered by the sea, as has been mentioned. It contains many islands, most of them are uninhabited, as is the case in the third section. The inhabited islands are the Peloponnesos, in the northwest, and Crete, which is oblong in shape and stretches from the middle of the section to the southeast. A large triangular area of the fifth section in the southwest is covered by the sea. The western side of, this triangle, goes to the northern boundary of the fifth section. The southern side goes across about two-thirds of the section. There remains at the eastern side of the section a portion of about one-third. Its northern part runs west along the seacoast, as we have stated. Its southern half contains the northernmost region of Syria. It is traversed in the middle by the Amanus. The Amanus eventually reaches the northern end of Syria, where it turns in a northeasterly direction. At the point where it turns, it is called Chain Mountain. There, it enters the fifth zone. After it turns, it traverses a portion of the Jazeera in an easterly direction. West of where it turns, there rise contiguous mountain ranges. They finally end at an inlet of the Mediterranean, 
near the northern end of the section. Through these mountains, there are passes which are called Ad Europe mountain passes. They lead into Armenia. This section contains a portion of Armenia situated between these mountains and the Chain Mountain. The southern region, as we have mentioned before, comprises the northernmost region of Syria, and the Amanus extends across it from south to north in the area between the Mediterranean and the boundary of the section. On the seacoast is Antarsus, at the beginning of the section to the south. It borders on Arca and Tripoli which lie on the shore of the Mediterranean in the third zone. North of Antarsus is Jabala, followed by Latakia, Alexandretta, and Selefk. North of these cities is the Byzantine territory. The Amanus, which lies between the sea and the end of the section, is hugged, in Syria in the southwestern part of the section, by the fortress of Lisan al-Kawabai, which belongs to the Ismaili assassins who at this time are called Fadawis. The fortress, also, is called Masayat. It lies opposite Antarsus to the east. On the side opposite this fortress, east of the Amanus, is Salamlia, north of Amisa. North of Masayat, between the mountain and the sea, lies Antioch. Opposite it, east of the Amanus, is Armera, and east of Armera, Al-Mariah. North of Antioch, there is Al-Masisa, followed by Adana and Tarsis, at the furthest point of Syria. Facing Antioch, west of the mountain, is Kinazrin, followed by Ain Zabar. Opposite Kinazrin, east of the mountain, is Aleppo, and opposite Ain Zabar is Manbij, the furthest point of Syria. The area to the right of the Durab, between them and the Mediterranean, comprises the Byzantine territory, Anatolia. At this time, it belongs to the Turkomans and is ruled by Ibn Uthman, the Ottomans. On the shore of the Mediterranean there, are Antalya and Al-Alaya. Armenia, which lies between the Durab and the Chain Mountain, comprises Marish, Malatya, and Ankara, up to the northern end of the section. In Armenia, in the fifth section, originate the river Jehan and, to the east of it, the river Sayan. The Jehan flows south until it has traversed the Durab. It then passes by Tarsis and Al-Masisa, then turns northwestward and eventually flows into the Mediterranean south of Selefk. The Sayan runs parallel to the Jehan. It is opposite Ankara and Marish, traverses the Durab Mountains, reaches Syria, then passes by Ain Zabar, then turns away from the Jehan, and turns northwestward. It joins the Jehan west of Al-Masisa. The Jazeera, which is surrounded by the portion of the Amanus that turns into the Chain Mountain, contains in the south Ar-Rafaka and Ar-Raka, followed by Haran, Sauj, Edessa, Nasibis, Samosata, and Amid, north of the Chain Mountain, at the northeastern end of the section. The Euphrates and the Tigris traverse this area in the middle. They originate in the fifth zone, pass southward through Armenia, and cross the Chain Mountain. The Euphrates, then, flows west of Samosata and Sauj in an easterly direction. It passes west of Ar-Rafaka and Ar-Raka and on into the sixth section. The Tigris flows east of Amid and shortly thereafter turns to the east. Then, it soon passes on into the sixth section. The sixth section of the fourth zone contains the Jazeera to the west. Immediately east of it is the country of the Iraq, which terminates near the boundary of the section. At the boundary of the Iraq is the mountain of Isfahan, which comes from the south of the section and runs in a westerly direction. When it reaches the middle of the northern end of the section, it runs west. Eventually, leaving the sixth section, it joins on its course due west, the chain mountain in the fifth section. The sixth section is divided into two portions, 
a western and an eastern. The western portion, in the south, contains the point where the Euphrates leaves the fifth section, and, in the north, the point where the Tigris leaves it. As soon as the Euphrates enters the sixth section, it passes Kirkizia. There, a river branches off from the Euphrates. It flows north into the Jazeera and disappears there in the ground. Shortly past Kirkizia, the Euphrates turns south and passes to the west of the Kibir and on west of Araba. A river branches off there from the Euphrates and flows south. Sifin lies to the west of it. This river then turns east and divides into a number of branches, some of them pass by Al-Kufa, others by Qaysar ibn Habira and Al-Janian, Al-Hilar. Now, in the south of the section all of them enter the third zone and disappear into the ground east of Al-Hiraya and Al-Qadisiyah. The Euphrates flows directly east from Araba and passes north of Hit. It then flows south of Asaband Al-Anbar, and into the Tigris at Baghdad. When the Tigris leaves the fifth section for the sixth section, it flows due east, opposite the chain mountain which connects with the mountain of Al-Iraq on its course due west, and passes north of Jazirat ibn Umar. Then it passes Mosul in the same way, and Tikrit. It reaches Al-Haditha, turns south, leaving Al-Haditha to the east of it, and likewise the greater and the lesser Zab. It flows directly south and to the west of Al-Qadisiyah. Eventually it reaches Baghdad and joins with the Euphrates. Then it flows south, to the west of Jarjaya, and eventually leaves the section and enters the third zone. There it divides into many branches. They unite again and they flow into the Persian Gulf at Abidin, the region between the Tigris and the Euphrates, before they have come together at Baghdad, is the Jazeera. Below Baghdad, another river joins the Tigris. It comes from northeast of the Tigris. It reaches a narrowin opposite Baghdad to the east. Then it turns south and joins with the Tigris before entering the third zone. For the region between this river and the mountains of Al-Arik and Kurdistan, there remains Jalilai and, east of it at the mountain, Hulwin and Samara. The western portion of the section contains a mountain that starts from the Kurdish mountains and runs east toward the end of the section. It is called the mountain of Sharazur. It divides the western portion into two subdivisions. The southern subdivision contains Kinijin, northwest of Isfahan. This section is called the country of Al-Balas. In the middle of the southern subdivision is Nahaiwan, and, in the north, Sharazur, west of the point where the two mountain ranges meet, and Ad-Dinawa, is, on the east, at the boundary of the section. The other subdivision contains part of Armenia, including its principal place, Al-Mariah. The portion of the mountain of Al-Iraq that faces it is called the mountain of Burma. It is inhabited by Kurds. The greater Zab and the lesser Zib at the Tigris are behind it. At the eastern end of this section lies Azerbaijan, which includes Tabriz and Al-Balagan. In the northeast corner of the section is a small portion of the Black Sea, the Caspian Sea of the Khazars. The seventh section of the fourth zone contains in the southwest, the largest portion of the country of Al-Balas, including Hamid-Hin and Kazwin. The remainder of it is in the third zone, Isfahan is situated there. Al-Balas and Isfahan, are surrounded on the south by mountains which come from the west, pass through the third zone, leave it in the sixth section for the fourth zone, and join the eastern portion of the mountain of Al-Iraq, as has been mentioned before. They, also, surround the eastern portion of the country of Al-Balas. These mountains which surround Isfahan run north from the third zone, 
enter this seventh section, and then enclose the country of Al-Balas on the east. Below, at the foot of, them, is Kishin, followed by Kuang. Near the middle of their course, they turn slightly west, then, describing an arc, they run northeastward, and eventually enter the fifth zone. Where they turn, west, and make the circle, our ray lies to the east. Where they turn, west, another mountain range starts and runs west to the boundary of the seventh section. South of the mountains there is Kazwin, north of them and alongside the connecting mountains of our ray, extending in a northeastern direction to the middle of the section and then into the fifth zone, lies the country of Tabaristan in the region between these mountains and a portion of the Caspian Sea, Sea of Tabaristan. From the fifth zone, it enters the seventh section about halfway between west and east, where the mountains of our ray turn west, there lie other, connecting mountains, they run directly east and slightly south, and eventually enter the eighth section from the west. Between the mountains of our ray and these mountains, at their starting point, there remains Jijun, which includes Bistam. Behind these, latter, mountains, there is a part of the seventh section that contains the remainder of the desert area between Fars and Khorasan, to the east of Kishin. At its farthest point, near these mountains, is Astarabi. On the eastern slopes of these mountains, and extending to the boundary of the section, lies the country of Nizabah, which belongs to Khorasan. South of the mountains and east of the desert area, lies Nizabah, followed by Maru Ash-Shayajan at the end of the section. North of it and east of Jijan, are Myrajan, Khazaran, and Tuz, the eastern end of the section. All these places are north of the mountains. Far to the north of them is the country of Nasa, which is surrounded by barren stretches of desert, in the northeastern corner of the section. The eighth section of the fourth zone, in the west, contains the Oxus which flows from south to north. On its western bank, there are Zam and Amul which belong to Khorasan, as well as at Tahiriya and Gurganj which belongs to Khorasan. The southwest corner of the section is surrounded by the mountains of Astarabad, which were found already in the seventh section. They enter this section from the west and encircle the southwestern corner, which includes the remainder of the country of Herat. In the third zone, the mountains pass between Herat and Al-Juzajan, and eventually connect with the Bottom Mountain, as we mentioned there. East of the Oxus in the south of this section, is the country of Bukhara, followed by the country of the Sogd, with Samarkand as its principal place. Then comes the country of Yuzrichana, which includes Kujanda at the eastern end of the section. North of Samarkand and Yuzrashana, is the land of Ilak. North of Ilak is the land of Tashkent, Ashish, which extends to the eastern boundary of the section and occupies a portion of the ninth section that in the south includes the remainder of the land of Fargana. From this portion of the ninth section, comes the river of Tashkent, Siadaya. It cuts through the eighth section, and eventually flows into the Oxus where the latter leaves the eighth section in the north for the fifth zone. In the land of Ilak, a river coming from the ninth section of the third zone, from the borders of Tibet, flows into the river of Tashkent, and before the latter leaves the ninth section, the river of Fargana flows into it. Parallel to the river of Tashkent lies Mount Jabragan, which starts from the fifth zone, turns southeast, and eventually enters the ninth section and runs along the borders of the land of Tashkent. Then, it turns in the ninth section, continues along the boundaries of Tashkent and Fargana, goes on to the southern part of the section, and then enters the third zone. 
Between the river of Tashkent and the bend of this mountain in the middle of the section, there is the country of Farab. Between it and the land of Bukhari and Khwarizm are barren stretches of desert. In the northeast corner of this section is the land of Kujanda, which includes Isbijab and Taraz, the ninth section of the fourth zone, to the west beyond Fargana and Tashkent, contains the land of the Kaluk in the south, and the land of the Kaluk in the north. The whole eastern part of the section to its farthest point is occupied by the land of the Kimak. It extends over the whole tenth section to the Kufaya Mountains which are at the eastern end of the section and lie there on a portion of the surrounding sea. They are the mountains of Gog and Magog. All these nations are Turkish peoples. The Fifth Zone Most of the first section of the Fifth Zone is covered by water, except a small portion of the south and of the east. In this western region, the surrounding sea enters into the fifth, sixth, and seventh zones from the circle it describes around the zones. The portion to the south that is free from water has a triangular shape, it there touches Spain and comprises the remainder of it. It is surrounded on two sides, by the sea, as if by the two sides of a triangle. It occupies the remainder of western Spain, including Montemaya on the seacoast at the beginning of the section in the southwest. Salamanca is to the east, and Zamora to the north. East of Salamanca, at the southern end, is a villa, and east of it, the land of Castilla with the city of Segovia. North of it is the land of Leon and Burgos. Beyond it to the north is the land of Galicia, which extends to the corner of this portion. At the surrounding sea there, at the far point of the western side, of the triangle, the portion includes the region of Santiago that is, Saint, Jacob, of eastern Spain, the triangular portion contains the city of Tudela, at the southern end of the section and to the east of Castilla. To the northeast of Tudela are Huesca and Pamplona directly to the east of, Huesca. West of Pamplona, there is Estela, Castella, followed by Najera in the region between Estela and Burgos. This, triangular, portion contains a large mountain. It faces the sea and the northeast side of the triangle, in close proximity both to it and to the seacoast at Pamplona in the east. We have mentioned before that it connects in the south with the Mediterranean in the fourth zone. It constitutes a barrier for Spain in the north. It passes a gates leading from Spain to the country of Gascogne, which belongs to the European Christian nations. In the fourth zone, there belong to Gascogne, Barcelona and Narbonne on the shore of the Mediterranean, north of them, Girona and Carcassonne, and in the fifth zone, Toulouse, north of Girona. The eastern portion of this section has the shape of an oblong triangle with its acute angle beyond the Pyrenees to the east. On the surrounding sea, at the top where it connects with the Pyrenees, this portion includes Bayonne. At the end of it, in the northeastern region of the section, is the land of Poitou, which belongs to the European Christians and extends to the end of the section. The western region of the second section contains the land of Gascogne. North of it are the lands of Poitou and Borges. Both countries have been mentioned by us. East of the country of Gascogne lies a portion of the Mediterranean. It projects into this section like a tooth, in an easterly direction. To the west, the country of Gascogne juts out into a gulf of the Mediterranean. At the northern extremity of this portion is the country of Genoa, along which to the north lie the Alps. At their northern limit lies the land of Burgundy, east of the Gulf of Genoa, which comes from the Mediterranean, another gulf comes from the same sea. The two gulfs include a portion of land in the shape of a peninsula on which, in the west, lies Pisa, 
and in the east the great city of Rome, the capital of the European Christians and the residence of the Pope, their highest religious dignitary. It contains magnificent, historically famous buildings, imposing monuments, and gigantic churches. One of the remarkable things at Rome is the river that flows through it from east to west, the bed of which is paved with copper. Rome contains the church of the apostles Peter and Paul, who are buried in it. North of the country of Rome is the country of Lombardy, which extends to the boundary of the section. On the eastern shore of the gulf on which Rome is situated, lies Naples. It is adjacent to the country of Calabria, which, also, belongs to the lands of the European Christians. North of it, a portion of the Adriatic Sea, Gulf of Venice, comes into this section from the third section, turns west, and faces north in this section, and extends to about one-third of it. A large portion of the country of the Venetians is situated on this portion of the Adriatic Sea, in the south, in the region between, the Adriatic Sea, and the surrounding sea. North of it lies the country of Aquilea in the sixth zone. The third section of the fifth zone contains in the west the country of Calabria, between the Adriatic Sea and the Mediterranean. Part of the mainland in the Mediterranean in the fourth zone forms a portion of land in the shape of a peninsula, between two gulfs that extend due north from the Mediterranean into this section. East of the country of Calabria is the country of the Lombards, along a portion of land formed by the Adriatic Sea and the Mediterranean, of which one end enters the fourth zone and the Mediterranean. To the east, this section is surrounded by the Adriatic Sea, which belongs to the Mediterranean. It flows due north, then turns west opposite the northern end of the section. Alongside it, a large mountain, range, comes from the fourth zone. It faces it, the sea, and runs parallel to it on its way north, then turns west along it in the sixth zone, and eventually ends opposite a straits in the north of it, in the country of Aquilea, a German, Alemanni, nation, as we shall mention. At this straits and between it and this mountain, range, where the mountains and the sea go off to the north, lies the country of the Venetians. Where the mountains and the sea go off to the west, they border the country of Jawazayi, and then the country of the Germans, Alemanni, at the end of the straits. The fourth section of the fifth zone contains a portion of the Mediterranean which enters it from the fourth zone. This portion of the sea, is strongly indented by arms of the sea which jut out in a northerly direction and are separated by portions of land in the shape of peninsulas. At the eastern end of the section lies the Straits of Constantinople. This narrow body of water, comes from this southern part, of the section, flows due north, and eventually enters the sixth zone. There, it immediately turns eastward, and joins, the Black Sea in the fifth section. The latter also occupies, part of the fourth and sixth sections of the sixth zone, as we shall mention. Constantinople is to the east of this straits at the northern end of the section. It is a large city and was the seat of the Byzantine emperors. There are many stories about the magnificent architectural and other monuments there. The portion of this section between the Mediterranean and the Straits of Constantinople comprises the country of Macedonia, which belonged to the ancient Greeks, whose royal authority had its origin there. East of the Straits and extending to the end of the section, there is a portion of the land of Batis. This, I believe, is the desert plains where, at the present time, the Turkomans roam. There is, located, the realm of Ibn Uthman, the Ottomans, with its chief city Bursa, Prussa. Before them, 
it belonged to the Byzantines, from whom it was taken away by other nations, and eventually came into possession of the Turkomans. The southwestern part of the fifth section of the fifth zone contains the land of Batis, Anatolia. North of it and extending to the boundary of the section, is the country of Amorium. East of Amorium is the Qubjib, Tokmasu, which flows into the Euphrates. It has its source in a mountain there and flows south until it joins the Euphrates, before the latter leaves this section and crosses over into the fourth zone. West of, the Euphrates, at the, southern, end of the section, the Sayan, and west of it, the Jehan, originate. Both rivers flow alongside, the Euphrates, they have been mentioned before. East of, the Euphrates, there, the Tigris originates. It always flows alongside, the Euphrates, and eventually joins it at Baghdad. In the southeastern corner of this section, behind the mountain where the Tigris originates, lies Mayafarikan. The Kubakaib, which we have mentioned, divides this section into two portions. The one covers the southwest and contains the land of Batis, Anatolia, as we have said. The northernmost part of, the land of Batis, the region extending to the northern end of the section and beyond the mountain where the Kubakaib originates, is the land of Amorium, as we have said. The other portion covers the northeastern and southeastern third, of the section. In the south of this the Tigris and Euphrates originate. In the north, there is the country of Al-Bailajan, which adjoins the land of Amorium behind Mount Kobajib and extends far. At its end, where the Euphrates originates, is Karshana. In the northeast corner is a portion of the Black Sea that connects with the Straits of Constantinople. The sixth section of the fifth zone contains in the southwest the country of Armenia, which extends eastward beyond the middle of the section. Arzon, Erzurum, is in the southwest, of Armenia, to the north, of it, lie Tiflis and Dabil. East of Arzon is the city of Kilat, followed by Badha. In the southeast is the, capital, city of Armenia. There, Armenia, entering the fourth zone, includes, Al, Mara, east of the mountain of the Kurds which is called Mountain of Barima, and which has been mentioned before in connection with the sixth section of the fourth zone. In this section, and in the fourth zone, Armenia is bordered to the east by the country of Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan's easternmost point in this section is Ardabil, on a portion of the Caspian Sea. The Caspian Sea enters this section from the east from the seventh section, and is called the Sea of Dabaristan, Caspian Sea. On its northern shore, in this section, it contains a portion of the country of the Khazars. They are Turkomans. At the northern end of this portion of the Caspian Sea, a mountain range begins and runs due west to the fifth section, crosses it, encircles Mayafarikan, and enters the fourth zone at Amid, where it connects with the chain mountain in the northernmost part of Syria, and from there, goes on to, connect with the Amanus, as has already been mentioned. In these mountains in the northern part of this section, there are passes that constitute a sort of gates giving entry from both sides. To the south, is the country of the gates, which extends eastward to the Caspian Sea. The city of Darbend, which belongs to this country, lies on the Caspian Sea. In the southwest, the country of the gates adjoins Armenia. East of, the country of the gates, between it and southern Azerbaijan, is the country of Aran, Aran, which extends to the Caspian Sea. North of these mountains, there lies a portion of this section comprising in the west the realm of the Sara, the northwest corner of that portion, which constitutes the northwest corner of the whole section, is also occupied by a small portion of the Black Sea that connects with the Straits of Constantinople. 
This has been mentioned before. This portion of the Black Sea is surrounded by the country of the Sara, Trebizond, which belongs to that country, lies on it. The country of the Sara extends between the mountains of the gates and the northern part of the section. It eventually reaches a mountain in the east that constitutes a barrier between it and the land of the Khazars. On the far boundary of the country of the Sara is the city of Sul. Behind this mountain barrier, there is a portion of the land of the Khazars reaching the northeast corner of this section, between the Caspian Sea and the northern end of the section. The seventh section of the fifth zone is entirely covered in the west by the Caspian Sea, a portion of which protrudes into the fourth zone to the south. On the shores of this portion are situated, as we have mentioned in connection with the fourth zone, the country of Tabaristine and the mountains of the Dalamukta Kazwin. In the west of this portion and connecting with it, there is the small portion that lies in the sixth section of the fourth zone. Connecting with it in the north is the portion that lies in the eastern part of the sixth section above. A part of the northwest corner of this section, where the Volga flows into it, is not covered by the Caspian Sea. In the eastern region of this section there, also, remains a part which is not covered by the Caspian Sea. It consists of desert plains in which the Guz, a Turk nation, Rome. They are also called the Tiz. Guz, looks like an Arabization, with KH becoming GH, and doubling of the Z. This part is surrounded by a mountain, range, to the south that enters the 8th section, runs not quite halfway through the western part, turns north, eventually touches the Caspian Sea, hugs it closely all the way through its remaining portion in the 6th zone, then turns at its end, and separates from it. There, it is called Mount Shia. It runs westward to the 6th section of the 6th zone, then turns back south to the 6th section of the 5th zone. It is this end of the mountain, range, that lies in this section between the land of the Sara and the land of the Khazars. The land of the Khazars extends along the slopes of the mountain called Mount Shia in the 6th and 7th sections, as will be mentioned. The whole 8th section of the 5th zone contains desert plains where the Guz, a Turkish nation, roam. In the southwest is Lake Aral, into which the Oxus flows. Its circumference is 300 miles, many rivers flow into it from these desert plains. In the northeast is the Lake of Gigan, a freshwater lake. Its circumference is 400 miles. In the northern region of this section stands Mount Murga, which means snow mountain, because the snow on it never melts. It lies at the far end of the section. South of the Lake of Gigan there is a mountain of solid stone where nothing grows. It is called Gigan Mountain. The lake is named after it. In the Gigan and Murgar Mountains north of the lake, innumerable rivers have their origin. They flow into the lake from both sides. The ninth section of the fifth zone contains the country of the Adhish, a Turkish nation, west of the country of the Guz, and east of the country of the Kimak. In the east of its end, the section, is hugged by the Kaifaya Mountains that surround Gog and Magog. They stretch there from south to north, assuming this direction right after entering from the 10th section, which they had, in turn, entered from the end of the 10th section of the 4th zone. There, they border the surrounding sea on the northern boundary of the section. They then turn west in the 10th section of the 4th zone and extend almost to the middle of the section. From where they begin to this point, they surround the country of the Kimak. Entering the 10th section of the 5th zone, they cross it in a westerly direction to its end. South of them remains a portion of that section that stretches west in an oblong shape and contains the end of the country of the Kimak. The mountains, then, 
enter the ninth section at its northeastern border, soon turn north, and run due north to the ninth section of the sixth zone, where the dam, of Gog and Magog, is situated, as we shall mention. There remains the portion that is surrounded by the Choir Mountains in the northeast corner of this section. It is oblong in shape and stretches southward. It belongs to the country of Gog. The tenth section of the fifth zone is entirely covered by the land of Gog, except for a portion of the surrounding sea which covers part of it in the east from south to north, and except for the portion that the Choir Mountains leave in the southwest on their way through the section. Everything else is the land of Gog. The Sixth Zone Half of the first section of the Sixth Zone is mostly covered by the sea, which stretches eastward in a curving line along the northern part, then runs southward along the eastern part, and ends near the southern part, of the section. A portion of land in this part is not covered by the sea, it is similar in shape to a peninsula, formed by two arms of the surrounding sea. It is long and wide, all this is the land of Brittany, at the entrance to it, between those two arms of the sea, and in the southeast corner of this section, there is the country of seas which is adjacent to the country of Poitou. The country of Poitou, has been mentioned before in connection with the first and second sections of the fifth zone. The second section of the sixth zone is entered by the surrounding sea in the west and north. In the northwest, it covers an oblong portion, extending, over more than half, the south-north extension, of, the section, east of Brittany, which was mentioned, in the first section. This portion of the sea, connects with the other portion in the north, that extends, from west to east. It widens somewhat in the western half of, the section. There, a portion of the island of England is situated. It is a large, far-flung island which contains a number of cities and is the seat of a magnificent realm. The remainder of, England, lies in the seventh zone, south of and adjacent to this western part and the island located there, and still, in the western half of this section, are the countries of Normandy and Flanders. Then, there is, northern, France in the southwest of this section, and, east of it, the country of Burgundy. All these countries belong to the European Christian nations, the eastern half of the section contains the country of the Germans, Alemanni. The south is taken up by the country of Aquilia, with the country of Burgundy farther north, and then the lands of Lorraine and Saxony. On a portion of the surrounding sea in the northeast corner, is the land of Frisia. All these countries belong to the German, Alemanni, nations. The western part of the third section of the sixth zone contains, in the south, the country of Bohemia, and in the north, the country of Saxony. The eastern part contains, in the south, the country of Hungary, and in the north, the country of Poland. Hungary and Poland, are separated by the Carpathian Mountains, Bolwat. They come from the fourth section, run northwest, and eventually end in the country of Saxony at the boundary of the western half, of this section. The fourth section of the sixth zone, in the south, contains the country of Jathulia, and, in the north, the country of Russia. They are separated by the Carpathian Mountains, from the beginning of the section in the west to its end in the eastern half. East of the land of Jathulia is the country of Jarmania. In the southeast corner, there is the land of Constantinople and the city of Constantinople at the end of the straits coming from the Mediterranean, where it connects with the Black Sea. A small portion of the Black Sea connecting with the straits appears in the southeast corner of the section. The corner between the straits and the Black Sea contains Muzana, 
The fifth section of the sixth zone, in the south, contains the Black Sea, stretching due east from the straits at the end of the fourth section. It traverses the whole of this section and part of the sixth section, covering a distance, in length, of 1,300 miles from its beginning and, in width, of 600 miles. Beyond the Black Sea in the south of this section, there remains a piece of the mainland which is oblong in shape and stretches from west to east. The, western portion, of it contains Heraclea on the shore of the Black Sea, a city, adjacent to the country of Al-Balakan in the fifth zone. In the eastern portion, of it is the land of the Alans, with its principal place, Sinope, on the Black Sea. North of the Black Sea in this section is the land of the Bulgars, Virgin, in the west, and in the east the country of Russia. All, these countries, lie on the shores of the Black Sea. The country of Russia surrounds the country of the Bulgars, Virgin, bordering it, in the eastern portion, of this section, in the northern portion, of the fifth section of the seventh zone, and in the western portion, of the fourth section of the sixth zone. The sixth section of the sixth zone contains in the west the remainder of the Black Sea, where it turns slightly north. Between the Black Sea and the northern boundary of the section is the country of the Comans. Following the northward direction of the Black Sea, there is the remainder of the country of the Alans, which was at the southern end of the fifth section and which here becomes wider as it extends northwards. In the eastern part of this section, the land of the Khazars continues, and farther east lies the land of the Burtas. In the northeast corner is the land of the Bulgars, Bulgar. In the southeast corner is the land of Balanjar, which is there traversed by a portion of Mount Shi'ar. These mountains follow, the coast of, the Caspian Sea later on in the seventh section, and, after separating from it, run west across this part, of the sixth section, and enter the sixth section of the fifth zone, where they are linked with the mountains of the gates. The country of the Khazars lies on both sides of them. The seventh section of the sixth zone contains in the southern area that Mount Shi'ar cuts across, to the western boundary of the section, after leaving the Caspian Sea. It is a portion of the country of the Khazars. East of, the country of the Khazars, is the portion of, the coast of, the Caspian Sea that is traversed by Mount Shi'ar, in the northeast. Beyond Mount Shi'ar, in the northwest, is the land of the Burps. In the eastern portion, of this section is the land of the Bashkirs and the Peshenegs, Turkish nations. The entire southern part of the eighth section of, the sixth zone, is occupied by the land of the Kuluk Turks. The northern region contains in the west the stinking land and, in the east, the land Gog and Magog are said to have laid waste before the dam was constructed. In this stinking land, the Volga, one of the largest rivers in the world, originates. It passes through the country of the Turks and flows into the Caspian Sea in the seventh section of the fifth zone. The Volga makes many turnings. It originates in a mountain in the stinking land, from which three streams issue and unite to form one river. It flows due west to the boundary of the seventh section of the sixth zone and turns north into the seventh section of the seventh zone, where it flows along the southwestern boundary. It leaves the seventh zone in the sixth section, flows a short distance west, then turns south a second time, and returns to the sixth section of the sixth zone, where a branch comes out of it and flows westward into the Black Sea in that section. The Volga itself next, passes through a portion of the country of the Bulgars, Bulgar, in the northeast, leaves the sixth zone in the seventh section to turn south a third time, flows through Mount Shi'ar, traverses the country of the Khazars, and enters the fifth zone in the seventh section. 
There it flows into the Caspian Sea, in that portion of the southwest corner of the section which is not covered by the sea. The ninth section of the sixth zone, in the west, contains the country of the Kifshit Turks the Kaikaks and the country of the Turgish, who are also Turks. In the east, it contains the country of Magog which is separated from the west by the aforementioned surrounding Khufaya mountains. They start at the surrounding sea in the eastern part of the fourth zone, and follow, the surrounding sea, to the northern boundary of the zone. There, they leave it and run northwesterly until they enter the ninth section of the fifth zone, where they return to their former due northerly course into the ninth section of, the sixth zone, which they cross from south to north, bearing a little to the west. There, in the middle of, the mountains, is the dam built by Alexander. The mountains, then, continue due north into the ninth section of the seventh zone, which they traverse from the south on up to the surrounding sea in the north. They follow along it from there westward into the fifth section of the seventh zone, where they encounter a portion of the surrounding sea to the west. In the middle of this ninth section is the dam built by Alexander, as we have said. Correct information about it is found in the Quran, Ubaidallah b. Karadabai mentioned in his geographical work that Alwaythik saw in a dream that the dam had opened. Frightened, he awakened and sent Salim, Salam, the dragoman to investigate the dam and to bring back information about it and a description of it, which he did. This is a long story that has nothing to do with the purpose of our work. The tenth section of the sixth zone is occupied by the country of Magog, extending to the end of the section. There it borders on a portion of the surrounding sea which surrounds the section to the east and north. This portion is oblong in the north and widens somewhat in the east. The seventh zone. The surrounding sea covers most of the seventh zone in the north, from the beginning, to the middle of the fifth section, where it touches the Kufaya mountains that surround Gog and Magog. The first and second sections are covered by water, except for the portion not covered by water where the island of England is located, most of which lies in the second section. In the first section, there is a corner of England which extends towards the north. The remainder, with a portion of the sea that encircles it, lies in the second section of the sixth zone. It was mentioned there. The channel connecting England with the mainland is there 12 miles wide. Beyond the island of England, in the north of the second section, is the island of Raslander oblong in shape, stretching lengthwise from west to east. Most of the third section of the seventh zone is covered by water, except for an oblong portion in the south that is wider in its eastern part. Here, the land of Poland continues, it was mentioned in connection with the third section of the sixth zone, as lying in the north of it. In the western part of the portion of the sea covering this section, there lies a round, wide, island. It is connected with the mainland by an isthmus in the south, which leads to the land of Poland. North of it is the island of Norway, oblong in shape, which stretches lengthwise from west to east in the north, of the section. The fourth section of the seventh zone is entirely covered in the north by the surrounding sea from the western to the eastern, boundaries of the section. Its southern part is not covered by the sea. To the west, it contains the land of the Finland, Turks. To the east lies the country of Tavist, followed by the land of Estonia, extending to the eastern boundary of the section. Estonia is permanently covered by snow and has little civilization. It borders on the country of Russia in the fourth and fifth sections of the sixth zone. The fifth section of the seventh zone contains in the west the country of Russia. In the north, Russia, 
extends to where the portion of the surrounding sea and the Quafire Mountains meet, as we have mentioned before. The eastern region of the section contains the continuation of the land of the Comans, which lies on, the shore of, a portion of the Black Sea in the sixth section of the sixth zone. It reaches the lake of Trmy in this section. This is a freshwater lake into which drain many rivers from the mountains south and north of it. In the northeast of this section is the land of the Nabaraya Turks, which extends to the boundary of the section. The sixth section of the seventh zone contains in the southwest the continuation of the land of the Comans. In the middle of that region is Lake Ghnwn. This is a freshwater lake into which drain the rivers from the mountains in the regions east of it. It is constantly frozen because of the severe cold, except for a short while during the summer. East of the country of the Comans is the country of Russia, which started in the northeast of the fifth section of the sixth zone. In the southeast corner of this, the sixth, section, is the remainder of the land of the Bulgars, Bulgar, that started in the northeastern part of the sixth section of the sixth zone. In the middle of this portion of the land of the Bulgars, there is the point where the Volga makes its first turn to the south, as has been mentioned. The Kruvaya Mountains stretch all along the northern boundary of the sixth section from the west to the east. The seventh section of the seventh zone, in the west, contains the remainder of the land of the Pechenegs, a Turkish nation. Beginning in the northeastern part of the preceding sixth and southwest of this section, it then, in the south, enters the sixth zone. In the east, there is the remainder of the land of the Bashkirs, followed by the remainder of the stinking land, which extends to the eastern boundary of the section. The northern boundary of the section is formed by the surrounding Khwaya Mountains stretching, all along it, from the west to the east. The eighth section of the seventh zone contains in the southwest the continuation of the stinking land. East of it is the sunken land, a remarkable place. It is an immense opening in the earth, so deep that the bottom cannot be reached. The appearance of smoke during the day and of fire at night, which by turns flares up and disappears, leads to the conclusion that the place is inhabited. A river is occasionally seen there. It cuts through it from south to north. In the east of this section is the waste country, which borders the dam. Across the northern limit of the section are the Khwaya Mountains, stretching all along it from the west to the east. The ninth section of the seventh zone contains in the west the country of the Kifchak, that is, the Kitekaks. It is traversed by the Khwaya Mountains where they turn away from the north of the section, at the surrounding sea and run southeast through the middle of the section. They then leave this zone for the ninth section of the sixth zone and pass across it. There, in the middle of them, is the Dam of Gog and Magog, which we have already mentioned. The eastern part of this section contains the land of Magog, behind the Quafire Mountains, on the sea. It is not very wide and is oblong in shape and surrounds it in the east and north. The tenth section of the seventh zone is entirely covered by the sea. This finishes the discussion of the world map with the seven zones. In the creation of heaven and earth and the difference between night and day, there are signs for those who know. Third Prefatory Discussion The Temperate and the Intemperate Zones The influence of the air upon the color of human beings and upon many, other, aspects of their condition. We have explained that the cultivated region of that part of the earth which is not covered by water has its center toward the north, because of the excessive heat in the south and the excessive cold in the north. The north and the south represent opposite extremes of cold and heat. 
it necessarily follows that there must be a gradual decrease from the extremes toward the center, which, thus, is moderate. The fourth zone is the most temperate cultivated region. The bordering third and fifth zones are rather close to being temperate. The sixth and second zones which are adjacent to them are far from temperate, and the first and seventh zones still less so. Therefore, the sciences, the crafts, the buildings, the clothing, the foodstuffs, the fruits, even the animals, and everything that comes into being in the three middle zones are distinguished by their temperate, well-proportioned character. The human inhabitants of these zones are more temperate, well-proportioned, in their bodies, color, character qualities, and, general, conditions they are found to be extremely moderate in their dwellings, clothing, foodstuffs, and crafts. They use houses that are well constructed of stone and embellished by craftsmanship, they rival each other in production of the very best tools and implements. Among them, one finds the natural minerals, such as gold, silver, iron, copper, lead, and tin. In their business dealings they use the two precious metals, gold and silver. They avoid intemperance quite generally in all their conditions, such are the inhabitants of the Maghrib, of Syria, the two Iraqs, Western India, as Zind, and China, as well as of Spain, also the European Christians nearby, the Galicians, and all those who live together with these peoples or near them in the three temperate zones. The Iraq and Syria are directly in the middle and therefore are the most temperate of all these countries. The inhabitants of the zones that are far from temperate, such as the first, second, sixth, and seventh zones, are also farther removed from being temperate in all their conditions. Their buildings are of clay and reeds, their foodstuffs are dura and herbs, their clothing is the leaves of trees, which they sew together to cover themselves, or animal skins. Most of them go naked. The fruits and seasonings of their countries are strange and inclined to be intemperate. In their business dealings, they do not use the two noble metals, but copper, iron, or skins, upon which they set a value for the purpose of business dealings. Their qualities of character, moreover, are close to those of dumb animals. It has even been reported that most of the Negroes of the first zone dwell in caves and thickets, eat herbs, live in savage isolation and do not congregate, and eat each other. The same applies to the Slavs. The reason for this is that their remoteness from being temperate produces in them a disposition and character similar to those of the dumb animals, and they become correspondingly remote from humanity. The same also applies to their religious conditions. They are ignorant of prophecy and do not have a religious law, except for the small minority that lives near the temperate regions. This minority includes, for instance, the Abyssinians, who are neighbors of the Yemenites and have been Christians from pre-Islamic and Islamic times down to the present, and the Mali, the Gorgor, and the Tikra who live close to the Maghrib and, at this time, are Muslims. They are said to have adopted Islam in the 7th, 13th, century, or, in the north, there are those Slav, European Christian, and Turkish nations that have adopted Christianity. All the other inhabitants of the intemperate zones in the south and in the north are ignorant of all religion. Religious, scholarship is lacking among them. All their conditions are remote from those of human beings and close to those of wild animals, and he creates what you do not know. The, foregoing statement, is not contradicted by the existence of the Yemen, the Hadramaut, Alokov, the Hijaz, the Yamima, and adjacent regions of the Arabian Peninsula in the first and second zones. As we have mentioned, 
The Arabian Peninsula is surrounded by the sea on three sides. The humidity of the sea influences the humidity in the air of the Arabian Peninsula. This diminishes the dryness and intemperance that, otherwise, the heat would cause. Because of the humidity from the sea, the Arabian Peninsula is to some degree temperate. Genealogists who had no knowledge of the true nature of things imagined that Negroes are the children of Ham, the son of Noah, and that they were singled out to be black as the result of Noah's curse, which produced Ham's color and the slavery God inflicted upon his descendants. It is mentioned in the Torah that Noah cursed his son Ham. No reference is made there to blackness. The curse included no more than that Ham's descendants should be the slaves of his brother's descendants. To attribute the blackness of the Negroes to Ham, reveals disregard of the true nature of heat and cold and of the influence they exercise upon the air, climate, and upon the creatures that come into being in it. The black color, of skin, common to the inhabitants of the first and second zones is the result of the composition of the air in which they live, and which comes about under the influence of the greatly increased heat in the south. The sun is at the zenith there twice a year at short intervals, in, almost, all seasons, the sun is in culmination for a long time, the light of the sun, therefore, is plentiful, people there have, to undergo, a very severe summer, and their skins turn black because of the excessive heat, something similar happens in the two corresponding zones to the north, the seventh and sixth zones, there, a white color, of skin, is common among the inhabitants, likewise the result of the composition of the air in which they live, and which comes about under the influence of the excessive cold in the north. The sun is always on the horizon within the visual field, of the human observer, or close to it, it never ascends to the zenith, nor even, gets, close to it. The heat, therefore, is weak in this region, and the cold severe in, almost, all seasons. In consequence, the color of the inhabitants is white, and they tend to have little body hair. Further consequences of the excessive cold are blue eyes, freckled skin, and blonde hair. The fifth, fourth, and third zones occupy an intermediate position. They have an abundant share of temperance which is the golden mean. The fourth zone, being the one most nearly in the center, is as temperate as can be. We have mentioned that before. The physique and character of its inhabitants are temperate to the high degree necessitated by the composition of the air in which they live. The third and fifth zones lie on either side of the fourth, but they are less centrally located. They are closer to the hot south beyond the third zone and the cold north beyond the fifth zone. However, they do not become intemperate. The four other zones are intemperate, and the physique and character of their inhabitants show it. The first and second zones are excessively hot and black, and the sixth and seventh zones cold and white. The inhabitants of the first and second zones in the south are called the Abyssinians, the Zanj, and the Sudanese, Negroes. These are synonyms used to designate the, particular, nation that has turned black. The name Abyssinians, however, is restricted to those Negroes who live opposite Mecca and the Yemen, and the name Zanj is restricted to those who live along the Indian Sea. These names are not given to them because of an, alleged, descent from a black human being, be it Ham or anyone else. Negroes from the south who settle in the temperate fourth zone or in the seventh zone that tends toward whiteness, are found to produce descendants whose color gradually turns white in the course of time. Vice versa, inhabitants from the north or from the fourth zone who settle in the south produce descendants whose color turns black. This shows that color is conditioned by the composition of the air.
In his Raja's poem on medicine, Avicenna said, where the Zanj live is a heat that changes their bodies, until their skins are covered all over with black, the Slavs acquire whiteness, until their skins turn soft. The inhabitants of the north are not called by their color, because the people who established the conventional meanings of words were themselves white. Thus, whiteness was something usual and common, to them, and they did not see anything sufficiently remarkable in it to cause them to use it as a specific term. Therefore, the inhabitants of the north, the Turks, the Slavs, the Tuguzuts, the Khazars, the Alans, most of the European Christians, the Gog and Magog are found to be separate nations and numerous races called by a variety of names. The inhabitants of the middle zones are temperate in their physique and character and in their ways of life. They have all the natural conditions necessary for a civilized life, such as ways of making a living, dwellings, crafts, sciences, political leadership, and royal authority. They thus have had, various manifestations of, prophecy, religious groups, dynasties, religious laws, sciences, countries, cities, buildings, horticulture, splendid crafts, and everything else that is temperate. Now, among the inhabitants of these zones about whom we have historical information are, for instance, the Arabs, the Byzantines, Rum, the Persians, the Israelites, the Greeks, the Indians, and the Chinese. When genealogists noted differences between these nations, their distinguishing marks and characteristics, they considered these to be due to their, different, descents. They declared all the Negro inhabitants of the South to be descendants of Ham. They had misgivings about their color and therefore undertook to report the aforementioned silly story. They declared all or most of the inhabitants of the North to be the descendants of Japheth, and they declared most of the temperate nations, who inhabit the central regions, who cultivate the sciences and crafts, and who possess religious groups and religious laws as well as political leadership and royal authority, to be the descendants of Shem. Even if the genealogical construction were correct, it would be the result of mere guesswork, not of cogent, logical argumentation. It would merely be a statement of fact. It would not imply that the inhabitants of the South are called Abyssinians and Negroes because they are descended from Black Ham. The genealogists were led into this error by their belief that the only reason for differences between nations is in their descent. This is not so. Distinctions between races or nations are in some cases due to a different descent, as in the case of the Arabs, the Israelites, and the Persians. In other cases, they are caused by geographical location and, physical, marks, as in the case of the Zanj, Negroes, the Abyssinians, the Slavs, and the Black, Sudanese, Negroes. Again, in other cases, they are caused by custom and distinguishing characteristics, as well as by descent, as in the case of the Arabs. Or, they may be caused by anything else among the conditions, qualities, and features peculiar to the different nations. But to generalize and say that the inhabitants of a specific geographical location in the south or in the north are the descendants of such and such a well-known person, because they have a common color, trait, or, physical, mark which that, alleged, forefather had, is one of those errors which are caused by disregard, both, of the true nature of created beings and of geographical facts. There also is disregard of the fact that the physical circumstances and environment, are subject to changes that affect later generations, they do not necessarily remain unchanged. This is how God proceeds with his servants, and verily, you will not be able to change God's way.
Fourth Prefatory Discussion The Influence of the Air, Climate, Upon Human Character We have seen that Negroes are in general characterized by levity, excitability, and great emotionalism. They are found eager to dance whenever they hear a melody. They are everywhere described as stupid. The real reason for these opinions is that, as has been shown by philosophers in the proper place, joy and gladness are due to expansion and diffusion of the animal spirit. Sadness is due to the opposite, namely, contraction and concentration of the animal spirit. It has been shown that heat expands and rarefies air and vapors and increases their quantity. A drunken person experiences inexpressible joy and gladness, because the vapor of the spirit in his heart is pervaded by natural heat, which the power of the wine generates in his spirit. The spirit, as a result, expands, and there is joy. Likewise, when those who enjoy a hot bath inhale the air of the bath, so that the heat of the air enters their spirits and makes them hot, they are found to experience joy. It often happens that they start singing, as singing has its origin in gladness. Now, Negroes live in the hot zone, of the earth. Heat dominates their temperament and formation, therefore, they have in their spirits an amount of heat corresponding to that in their bodies and that of the zone in which they live. In comparison with the spirits of the inhabitants of the fourth zone, theirs are hotter and, consequently, more expanded, as a result, they are more quickly moved to joy and gladness, and they are merrier. Excitability is the direct consequence, in the same way, the inhabitants of coastal regions are somewhat similar to the inhabitants of the south. The air in which they live is very much hotter because of the reflection of the light and the rays of, the sun from, the surface of the sea. Therefore, their share in the qualities resulting from heat, that is, joy and levity, is larger than that of the, inhabitants of, cold and hilly or mountainous countries. To a degree, this may be observed in the inhabitants of the Jarid in the third zone. The heat is abundant in it and in the air there, since it lies south of the coastal plains and hills. Another example is furnished by the Egyptians. Egypt lies at about the same latitude as the Jarid. The Egyptians are dominated by joyfulness, levity, and disregard for the future. They store no provisions of food, neither for a month nor a year ahead, but purchase most of it, daily, in the market. Fez in the Maghrib, on the other hand, lies inland, and is, surrounded by cold hills, its inhabitants can be observed to look sad and gloomy and to be too much concerned for the future. Although a man in Fez might have provisions of wheat stored, sufficient to last him for years, he always goes to the market early to buy his food for the day, because he is afraid to consume any of his hoarded food. If one pays attention to this sort of thing in the various zones and countries, the influence of the varying quality of the air upon the character, of the inhabitants, will become apparent. God is the creator, the knowing one. Al-Masudi undertook to investigate the reason for the levity, excitability, and emotionalism in Negroes, and attempted to explain it. However, he did no better than to report, on the authority of Galen and Yagub B. Ishak al-Kind, that the reason is a weakness of their brains which results in a weakness of their intellect. This is an inconclusive and unproven statement. God guides whomever he wants to guide. Fifth Prefatory Discussion Differences with regard to abundance and scarcity of food in the various inhabited regions, Yumran, and how they affect the human body and character. 
It should be known that not all the temperate zones have an abundance of food, nor do all their inhabitants lead a comfortable life. In some parts, the inhabitants enjoy an abundance of grain, seasonings, wheat, and fruits, because the soil is well balanced and good for plants and there is an abundant civilization. And then, in other parts, the land is strewn with rocks, and no seeds or herbs grow at all. There, the inhabitants have a very hard time. Instances of such people are the inhabitants of the Hijaz and the Yemen, or the veiled Sinhia who live in the desert of the Maghrib on the fringes of the sandy deserts which lie between the Berbers and the Sudanese Negroes. All of them lack all grain and seasonings, their nourishment and food is milk and meat. Another such people is the Arabs who roam the waste regions. They may get grain and seasonings from the hills, but this is the case only at certain times and is possible only under the eyes of the militia which protects the hill country. Whatever they get is little, because they have little money, they obtain no more than the bare necessity, and sometimes less, and in no case enough for a comfortable or abundant life. They are mostly found restricted to milk, which is for them a very good substitute for wheat. In spite of this, the desert people who lack grain and seasonings are found to be healthier in body and better in character than the hill people who have plenty of everything. Their complexions are clearer, their bodies cleaner, their figures more perfect and better, their characters less intemperate, and their minds keener as far as knowledge and perception are concerned. This is attested by experience in all these groups. There is a great difference in this respect between the Arabs and Berbers, on the one hand, and the veiled, Berbers, and the inhabitants of the hills, on the other. This fact is known to those who have investigated the matter, as to the reason for it, it may be tentatively suggested that a great amount of food and the moisture it contains generate pernicious superfluous matters in the body, which, in turn, produce a disproportionate widening of the body, as well as many corrupt, putrid humors. The result is a pale complexion and an ugly figure, because the person has too much flesh, as we have stated, when the moisture with its evil vapors ascends to the brain, the mind and the ability to think are dulled. The result is stupidity, carelessness, and a general intemperance. This can be exemplified by comparing the animals of waste regions and barren habitats, such as gazelles, wild cows, maha, ostriches, giraffes, onagers, and, wild, buffaloes, cows, bagger, with their counterparts among the animals that live in hills, coastal plains, and fertile pastures. There is a big difference between them with regard to the glossiness of their coat, their shape and appearance, the proportions of their limbs, and their sharpness of perception. The gazelle is the counterpart of the goat, and the giraffe that of the camel, the onagers and, wild, buffaloes, cows, are identical with, domestic, donkeys and oxen, and cows. Still, there is a wide difference between them. The only reason for it is the fact that the abundance of food in the hills produces pernicious superfluous matters and corrupt humors in the bodies of the domestic animals, the influence of which shows on them. Hunger, on the other hand, may greatly improve the physique and shape of the animals of the waste regions. The same observations apply to human beings. We find that the inhabitants of fertile zones where the products of agriculture and animal husbandry as well as seasonings and fruits are plentiful, are, as a rule, described as stupid in mind and coarse in body. This is the case with those Berbers who have plenty of seasonings and wheat, as compared with those who lead a frugal life and are restricted to barley or dura, such as the Masmuda Berbers and the inhabitants of Assas and the Gemera. The latter are superior both intellectually and physically. 
The same applies in general to the inhabitants of the Maghrib who have plenty of seasonings and fine wheat, as compared with the inhabitants of Spain in whose country butter is altogether lacking and whose principal food is dura. The Spaniards are found to have a sharpness of intellect, a nimbleness of body, and a receptivity for instruction such as no one else has. The same also applies to the inhabitants of rural regions of the Maghrib as compared with the inhabitants of settled areas and cities. Both use many seasonings and live in abundance, but the town dwellers only use them after they have been prepared and cooked and softened by admixtures. They thus lose their heaviness and become less substantial. Principal foods are the meat of sheep and chickens. They do not use butter because of its tastelessness, therefore the moisture in their food is small, and it brings only a few pernicious superfluous matters into their bodies. Consequently, the bodies of the urban population are found to be more delicate than those of the inhabitants of the desert who live a hard life. Likewise, those inhabitants of the desert who are used to hunger are found to have in their bodies no superfluous matters, thick or thin. It should be known that the influence of abundance upon the body is apparent even in matters of religion and divine worship. The frugal inhabitants of the desert and those of settled areas who have accustomed themselves to hunger and to abstinence from pleasures are found to be more religious and more ready for divine worship than people who live in luxury and abundance. Indeed, it can be observed that there are few religious people in towns and cities, inasmuch as people there are for the most part obdurate and careless, which is connected with the use of much meat, seasonings, and fine wheat. The existence of pious men and ascetics is, therefore, restricted to the desert, whose inhabitants eat frugally. Likewise, the condition of the inhabitants within a single city can be observed to differ according to the different distribution of luxury and abundance. It can also be noted that those people who, whether they inhabit the desert or settled areas and cities, live a life of abundance and have all the good things to eat, die more quickly than others when a drought or famine comes upon them. This is the case, for instance, with the Berbers of the Maghrib and the inhabitants of the city of Fez and, as we hear, of Egypt, Cairo. It is not so with the Arabs who inhabit waste regions and deserts, or with the inhabitants of regions where the date palm grows and whose principal food is dates, or with the present-day inhabitants of Ifakia whose principal food is barley and olive oil, or with the inhabitants of Spain whose principal food is dura and olive oil. When a drought or a famine strikes them, it does not kill as many of them as of the other group of people, and few, if any, die of hunger. As a reason for that, it may tentatively be suggested that the stomachs of those who have everything in abundance and are used to seasonings and, in particular, to butter, acquire moisture in addition to their basic constitutional moisture, and, the moisture they are used to, eventually becomes excessive. Then, when, eating, habits are thwarted by small quantities of food, by lack of seasonings, and by the use of coarse food to which it is unaccustomed, the stomach, which is a very weak part of the body and for that reason considered one of the vital parts, soon dries out and contracts. Sickness and sudden death are prompt consequences to the man whose stomach is in this condition, those who die satiation, not of the hunger that now afflicts them for the first time. In those who are accustomed to thirst and to doing without seasonings and butter, the basic moisture, which is good for all natural foods, always stays within its proper limits and does not increase. Thus, their stomachs are not affected by dryness or intemperance in consequence of a change of nourishment. As a rule, they escape the fate that awaits others on account of the abundance of their food and the great amount of seasonings in it.
The basic thing to know is that foodstuffs, and whether to use or not to use them, are matters of custom. Whoever accustoms himself to a particular type of food that agrees with him becomes used to it. He finds it painful to give it up or to make any changes in his diet, provided the type of food is not something that does not fulfill the real purpose of food, such as poison or alkaloids or anything excessively intemperate. Whatever can be used as food and is agreeable may be used as customary food. If a man accustoms himself to the use of milk and vegetables instead of wheat, until the use of them gets to be his custom, milk and vegetables become for him his habitual food, and he definitely has no longer any need for wheat or grains. The same applies to those who have accustomed themselves to suffer hunger and do without food. Such things are reported about trained ascetics. We hear remarkable things about men of this type. Those who have no knowledge of things of the sort can scarcely believe them. The explanation lies in custom. Once the soul gets used to something, it becomes part of its makeup and nature, because the soul is able to take on many colorings. If through gradual training it has become used to hunger, hunger becomes a natural custom of the soul. The assumption of physicians that hunger causes death is not correct, except when a person is exposed suddenly to hunger and is entirely cut off from food. Then, the stomach is isolated, and contracts an illness that may be fatal. When, however, the amount of food one eats is slowly decreased by gradual training, there is no danger of death. The adepts of Sufism practice such gradual abstinence from food. Gradualness is also necessary when one gives up the training. Were a person suddenly to return to his original diet, he might die. Therefore, he must end the training as he started it, that is, gradually. We personally saw a person who had taken no food for 40 or more consecutive days. Our sheikhs were present at the court of Sultan Abul Hassan when two women from Al Hasiris and Ronda were presented to him who had for years abstained from all food. Their story became known, they were examined, and the matter was found to be correct. The women continued this way until they died. Many persons we used to know restricted themselves to a diet of goat's milk. They drank from the udder sometime during the day or at breakfast. This was their only food for 15 years. There are many others who live similarly. It should not be considered unlikely. It should be known that everybody who is able to suffer hunger or eat only little, is physically better off if he stays hungry than if he eats too much. Hunger has a favorable influence on the health and well-being of body and intellect, as we have stated. This may be exemplified by the different influence of various kinds of food upon the body. We observe that those persons who live on the meat of strong, larger-bodied animals grow up as a strong and large-bodied race. Comparison of the inhabitants of the desert with those of settled areas shows this. The same applies to persons who live on the milk and meat of camels. This influences their character, so that they become patient, persevering, and able to carry loads, as is the case with camels. Their stomachs also grow to be healthy and tough as the stomachs of camels. They are not beset by any feebleness or weakness, nor are they affected by unwholesome food, as others are. They may take strong, alkaloid, cathartics unadulterated to purify their bellies, such as, for instance, unripe colocynths, thapsia garganica, and euphorbia. Their stomachs do not suffer any harm from them, but if the inhabitants of settled areas, whose stomachs have become delicate because of their soft diet, were to partake of them, death would come to them instantly, because, these cathartics, have poisonous qualities.
An indication of the influence of food upon the body is a fact that has been mentioned by agricultural scholars and observed by men of experience, that when the eggs of chickens which have been fed on grain cooked in camel dung, are set to hatch, the chicks come out as large as can be imagined. One does not even have to cook any grain to feed them, one merely smears camel dung on the egg set to hatch, and the chickens that come out are extremely large. There are many similar things, when we observe the various ways in which food exercises an influence upon bodies, there can be no doubt that hunger also exercises an influence upon them, because two opposites follow the same pattern with regard to exercising an influence or not exercising an influence. Hunger influences the body in that it keeps it free from corrupt superfluities and mixed fluids that destroy body and intellect, in the same way that food influenced the original existence of the body. God is omniscient. Sixth Prefatory Discussion The various types of human beings who have supernatural perception either through natural disposition or through exercise, preceded by a discussion of inspiration and dream visions. It should be known that God has chosen certain individuals, he honored them by addressing them, he created them so that they might know him, he made them connecting links between himself and his servants. These individuals are to acquaint their fellow men with what is good for them and to urge them to let themselves be guided aright. They are to make it their task to keep their fellow men out of the fire of hell and to show them the path to salvation. The knowledge that God gave these individuals and the wonders he manifested through their statements indicated that there exist things beyond the reach of man that can be learned only from God through the mediation of these individuals, and that, these individuals themselves, cannot know unless God instructs them in them. Muhammad said, Indeed, I know only what God taught me, it should be known that the information they give is intrinsically and necessarily true, as will become clear when the reality of prophecy is explained. The sign by which this type of human being can be recognized is that, in the state of inspiration, they seem to be removed from those who are present. This is accompanied by a feeling of being choked that looks like swooning or unconsciousness but has nothing to do with either. In reality, it is an immersion in, and, encounter with the spiritual kingdom, the result of perceptions congenial to them but entirely foreign to the, ordinary, perceptions of men. These extraordinary perceptions, are then brought down to the level of human perceptions in the form of some speech sound the person, who receives the revelation, hears and is able to do understand, or in the form of an individual delivering the divine message to him. This state, of remoteness, then leaves him, but he retains the content of the given revelation. When Muhammad was asked about revelation, he said, at times, it comes to me like the ringing of a bell. This affects me most. When it leaves me, I have retained what was said. At other times, the angel appears to me in the form of a man. He talks to me, and I retain the things he says. During that, process, the person who receives the revelation, shows inexplicable signs of strain and choking. A tradition says, there was some anxiety in connection with the revelation that he had to calm. Aisha said, the revelation would come to him on very cold days. Nevertheless, when it left him, there was sweat on his forehead. God says in the Quran, we shall lay upon you a heavy message. Because the act of receiving revelations leads to such conditions, the polytheists used to accuse the prophets of being possessed by jinn. They said, he has a jinni as his double ganger, or companion, 
The outward appearance of the condition they observed misled them, he whom God leads astray has no guide. Another sign by which inspired human beings can be recognized is the fact that, even, before receiving revelations, they are good, innocent, and averse to any blameworthy, sinful action. This is what is meant by isma, immunity from sin and error, infallibility. It looks as if, by nature, they were disposed to avoid and shun blameworthy actions, and as if such actions were the negation of their very nature. According to, the sound tradition of, the Sahi, when Muhammad was a young man he carried stones with his uncle Al-Abbas for the restoration of the Kaaba. He was carrying them in his cloak, and thus, he was undressed. As this was unbecoming, he fell down in a swoon that lasted until he was covered with his cloak. On another occasion, he was invited to a wedding party where there was much merrymaking. He fell fast asleep, and slept until the sun rose. Thus, he had nothing to do with the things the others did on that occasion. God kept him from all that, it was his nature, he even avoided food that was considered objectionable. Thus, he never touched onions or garlic. When he was asked about it, he said, I communicate with one with whom you do not communicate. Attention should be paid, in this connection, to what Muhammad told Khadija about the revelation when he first experienced it, and she wanted to know what it was like. She asked him to embrace her, and when he did so, it left him. Khadija, thereupon, said that it was an angel, and not a devil, meaning that, a devil, would not come close to a woman. She also asked him what garments he liked best, for the angel, to wear during the revelation, and he replied, white and green ones. Whereupon Khadija said that it was an angel, meaning that green and white are the colors of goodness and of the angels. Black, on the other hand, is the color of evil and of the devils. There are other such stories. Another sign by which, inspired human beings can be recognized, is the fact that they make propaganda for religion and divine worship by means of prayer, almsgiving, and chastity. Khadija, as well as Abu Bakr, took that, conduct, as proof of Muhammad's truthfulness. They did not need any further proof of his mission beyond his conduct and character. According to, the sound tradition of, the Sahih, when Heraclius received the Prophet's letter in which he was asked to become a Muslim, he is said to have called the Qurashites who could be found in his country, among them Abu Sufyan, and to have asked them about Muhammad's condition. One of the questions he asked concerned the things Muhammad commanded them to do. Abu Sufyan's reply was, prayer, almsgiving, gifts, and chastity. Similar replies were given to all the other questions Heraclius asked. Heraclius' comment was, if it is all really as you say, he is a prophet and he will take possession of this very ground upon which I am standing. The chastity to which Heraclius referred is isma, immunity from sin and error, infallibility. It is worth noting that Heraclius considered isma and propaganda for religion and divine worship as proofs of the genuineness of a prophetical mission, and did not require a miracle. This story, therefore, is proof that these qualities are among the signs of prophecy. Another sign by which, inspired human beings can be recognized, is the fact that they have prestige among their people. According to, the sound tradition of, the Sahi, God sent no prophet who did not enjoy the protection of his people. Another ascension reads, who did not enjoy wealth among his people. This is Al-Hakim's correction of the two Sahis according to, the sound tradition of, the Sahi. Abu Sufyan replied to Heraclius' question concerning Muhammad standing among the Qurashites, by saying, 
that he had prestige among them. Whereupon Heraclius said, whenever messengers are sent, they have prestige among their people, that means that, such a man, has group feeling and influence which protect him from harm at the hands of unbelievers, until he has delivered the messages of his Lord and achieved the degree of complete perfection with respect to his religion and religious organization that God intended for him. Another sign by which, inspired human beings can be recognized, is that they work wonders which attest to their truthfulness. Wonders are actions the like of which it is impossible for other human beings to achieve, they are, therefore, called miracles, they are not within the ability of men, but beyond their power, there is a difference of opinion as to how they occur and as to how they prove the truth of the prophets. Speculative theologians base themselves on the doctrine of the voluntary agent and say that miracles occur through the power of God, and not through the action of the prophet. The Mutazilla maintain that human actions proceed from man himself, still, miracles do not belong to the type of actions that human beings perform. According to all, schools, the prophet's place in the performance of miracles is, circumscribed by, the advanced challenge, tahadi, which he offers by divine permission. That is, the prophet uses the miracles before they occur as proof of the truth of his claims, they thus take the place of an explicit statement from God to the effect that a particular prophet is truthful, and they are definite proof of the truth. An evidential miracle is the combination of a wonder and the advanced challenge, tahadi, that, announces, it. Therefore, the latter constitutes part of the miracle, the notion of the speculative theologians, concerning the voluntary agent, is self-explanatory. The voluntary agent, is, just, one, for they hold that essential means, being just one, according to the notion of the speculative theologians, the advanced challenge, tahadi, is what makes the difference between, miracles, on the one hand, and acts of divine grace and sorcery, on the other, since, the latter, two need no confirmation of their truthfulness. The advanced challenge, if it occurs at all in these cases, exists, in them, only by chance, in the opinion of those who admit the existence of acts of divine grace, if an advanced challenge, tahadi, occurs in connection with them, and if it is proof of them, it is proof only of saintliness, which is different from prophecy. This is why Professor Abu Ishaq and others did not admit the occurrence of wonders as acts of divine grace, they wanted to avoid confusion between the advanced challenge, tahadi, of the saint and prophecy. We, however, have, just, shown that there is a difference between the two. The advanced challenge, tahadi, of a saint is concerned with other things than that of a prophet. There can be no doubt that the report on the authority of Professor Abu Ishaq is not clear and has often led to denial of, the possibility, that the wonders of the prophets could have been wrought by, saints, on the grounds that each of the two groups has its own kind of wonders. The Mutazilla do not admit the occurrence of acts of divine grace, because wonders do not belong to the actions of man that are customary and allow of no break, in the customary process. It is absurd to believe that miracles could be produced fraudulently by a liar. According to the Asherites, this is absurd because the essential part of a miracle is defined as confirmation of truthfulness and right guidance. Were a miracle to occur under the contrary conditions, proof would become doubt, guidance misguidance, and, I might add, the confirmation of truthfulness, untruth. Realities would become absurdities, and the essential qualities would be turned upside down, something, the occurrence of which would be absurd, cannot be possible. According to the Mutazilla, fraudulent miracles are absurd, 
because it is improper for proofs to turn into doubts and for guidance to turn into misguidance. Such, therefore, could not come from God. The philosophers hold that wonders are acts of the prophet, who performs them, even though they have no place in the power, of the prophet himself. This is based upon their doctrine that, there exists, an essential and necessary, causality, and that events develop out of each other according to conditions and reasons that, always, come up anew and, in the last instance, go back to the necessary per se that acts per se and not by choice. In their opinion, the prophetical soul has special essential qualities which produce wonders, with the help of the power of, the necessary per se, and the obedience of the elements to him for purposes of generation. The role of, the prophet, in this process, in their opinion, is that through those qualities that God put into him, he is by nature fitted for being active among, all, created things, whenever he addresses himself to them and concentrates on them. They hold that wonders are wrought by the prophet, himself, whether there is an advanced challenge, to Hadi, or not, they are evidence of the prophet's truthfulness, inasmuch as they prove that he is active among the created things, such activity constituting a special quality of the prophetic soul, not because they take the place of a clear assertion of his truthfulness. In their opinion, therefore, wonders are no definitive proof of the prophet's truthfulness, as they are in the opinion of the speculative theologians. Advance awareness, for them, does not constitute part of the miracle. It does not stand out as the thing that differentiates miracles from acts of divine grace. They hold that miracles are differentiated from sorcery by the fact that a prophet is by nature fitted for good actions and averse to evil deeds. Therefore, he could not do evil through the wonders he works. The opposite is the case with the sorcerer. All his actions are evil and done for evil purposes. Further, Miracles, are differentiated from acts of divine grace by the fact that the wonders of a prophet are of an unusual character, such as ascending to heaven, passing through solid bodies, reviving the dead, conversing with angels, and flying through the air. The wonders of a saint, on the other hand, are of a lower order, such as making much out of little, speaking about something that will happen in the future, and similar things inferior to the power of action of prophets. A prophet can produce the wonders of saints, but a saint is not able to produce anything like the wonders of prophets. This has been confirmed by the Sufis in what they have written about the mystic path and reported of their ecstatic experiences. Now that this has been established, it should be known that the evidence of the Noble Quran, which was revealed to our Prophet, is the greatest, noblest, and clearest miracle. Wonders are as a rule wrought by a Prophet separately and apart from the revelation he receives, the miracle comes as evidence for its truthfulness. This is obvious. The Quran, on the other hand, is in itself the claimed revelation. It is itself the wondrous miracle. It is its own proof. It requires no outside proof, as do the other wonders wrought in connection with revelations. It is the clearest proof that can be, because it unites in itself both the proof and what is to be proved. This is the meaning of Muhammad's statement. Every prophet was given signs likely to provide reassurance for mankind. What I have been given is a revelation that was revealed to me. Therefore, I hope to have the greatest number of followers on the day of resurrection. He refers to the fact that a miracle which is identical with the revelation, confirmed by it, is of such clarity and force of evidence that it will be found truthful, because of its clarity, by the greatest number of people. Therefore, many are those who consider, the prophet, truthful and believe, they are the followers, the nation of Islam.
and God, praised be he, knows better. All this indicates that the Quran is alone among the divine books, in that our Prophet received it directly in the words and phrases in which it appears. In this respect, it differs from the Torah, the Gospel, and other heavenly books. The Prophets received them in the form of ideas during the state of revelation. After their return to a human state, they expressed those ideas in their own ordinary words. Therefore, those books do not have inimitability. Inimitability is restricted to the Quran. The other prophets received their books in a manner similar to that in which our prophet received, certain, ideas that he attributed to God, such as are found in many traditions. The fact that he received the Quran directly, in its literal form, is attested by the following statement of Muhammad on the authority of his Lord who said, Do not set your tongue in motion to make haste with, the revelation of the Quran. It is up to us to put it together and to recite it. The reason for the revelation of these verses was Muhammad's haste to study the Quranic verses, because he feared that he might forget them, and because he wished to keep the directly and literally revealed text in memory. God guaranteed him that he, himself, would keep it in the following verse, we revealed the reminder, and we are keeping it. This is the meaning of keeping which is peculiar to the Quran, the meaning of it is not what the common people think. Their opinion is far off the mark. Many verses of the Quran show that he directly and literally revealed the Quran, of which every surah is inimitable. Our Prophet wrought no greater miracle than the Quran and the fact that he united the Arabs in his mission. If you had expended all the treasures on earth, you would have achieved no unity among them, but God achieved unity among them. This should be known. It should be pondered, it will then be found to be correct, exactly as I have stated. One should also consider the evidence that lies in the superiority of Muhammad's rank over that of the other prophets and in the exaltedness of his position. We shall now give an explanation of the real meaning of prophecy as interpreted by many thorough scholars, we shall then mention the real meaning of soothsaying, dream vision, divination, and other supernatural ways of perception. We say, the real meaning of prophecy. It should be known that we may God guide you and us notice that this world with all the created things in it has a certain order and solid construction. It shows nexuses between causes and things caused, combinations of some parts of creation with others, and transformations of some existent things into others, in a pattern that is both remarkable and endless. Beginning with the world of the body and sensual perception, and therein first with the world of the visible elements, one notices, how these elements are arranged gradually and continually in an ascending order, from earth to water, from water, to air, and, from air, to fire. Each one of the elements is prepared to be transformed into the next higher or lower one, and sometimes is transformed. The higher one is always finer than the one preceding it. Eventually, the world of the spheres is reached. They are finer than anything else. They are in layers which are interconnected, in a shape which the senses are able to perceive only through the existence of motions. These motions provide some people with knowledge of the measurements and positions of the spheres, and also with knowledge of the existence of the essences beyond, the influence of which is noticeable in the spheres through the fact that they have motion. One should then look at the world of creation. It started out from the minerals and progressed, in an ingenious, gradual manner, to plants and animals. The last stage of minerals is connected with the first stage of plants, such as herbs and seedless plants. The last stage of plants, 
such as palms and vines, is connected with the first stage of animals, such as snails and shellfish which have only the power of touch. The word connection with regard to these created things means that the last stage of each group is fully prepared to become the first stage of the next group. The animal world then widens, its species become numerous, and, in a gradual process of creation, it finally leads to man, who is able to think and to reflect. The higher stage of man is reached from the world of the monkeys, in which both sagacity and perception are found, but which has not reached the stage of actual reflection and thinking. At this point we come to the first stage of man after, the world of monkeys. This is as far as our, physical, observation extends. Now, in the various worlds we find manifold influences. In the world of sensual perception there are certain influences of the motions of the spheres and the elements. In the world of creation there are certain influences of the motions of growth and perception. All this is evidence of the fact that there is something that exercises an influence and is different from the Bodhi-Li substances. This is something spiritual, it is connected with the created things, because the various worlds must be connected in their existence. This spiritual thing is the soul, which has perception and causes motion. Above the soul there must exist something else that gives the soul the power of perception and motion, and that is also connected with it. Its essence should be pure perception and absolute intellection. This is the world of the angels. The soul, consequently, must be prepared to exchange humanity for angelicality, in order actually to become part of the angelic species at certain times in the flash of a moment. This happens after the spiritual essence of the soul has become perfect in actuality, as we shall mention later on. The soul, is connected with the stage next to it, as are all the orders of the existentia, as we have mentioned before, it is connected both upward and downward. Downward, it is connected with the body. Through, the body, the soul, acquires the sense perceptions by which it is prepared for actual intellection. Upward, it is connected with the stage of the angels. There, it acquires scientific and supernatural perceptions, for knowledge of the things that come into being exists timelessly in the intellections of, the angels. This is in consequence of the well-constructed order of existence mentioned above, which requires that the essences and powers of, the world of existence, be connected with one another. The human soul cannot be seen, but its influence is evident in the body. It is as if all, the bodies, parts, in combination or separately, were organs of the soul and its powers. The powers of action are touching with the hand, walking with the foot, speaking with the tongue, and the total combined motion with the body. The powers of sensual perception are graded and ascend to the highest power, that is, the power of thinking, for which there exists the term rational power. Thus, the powers of external sense perception, with the organs of vision, hearing, and all the other, organs, lead up to inward, perception. The first, inward sense, is the common sense, that is, the power that simultaneously perceives all objects of sensual perception, whether they belong to hearing, seeing, touching, or anything else. In this respect, it differs from the power of external sense perception, as the objects of sensual perception do not all crowd upon external sense perception at one and the same time. The common sense transfers, the perceptions, to the imagination, which is the power that pictures an object of sensual perception in the soul, as it is, abstracted from all external matter. The organ for the activity of these two powers, common sense and imagination, is the first cavity of the brain. 
The front part of that cavity is for the common sense, and the back part for the imagination. Imagination leads up to the estimative power and the power of memory. The estimative power serves for perceiving, abstract, ideas that refer to individualities, such as the hostility of Zaid, the friendship of armor, the compassion of the father, or the savagery of the wolf. The power of memory serves as a repository for all objects of perception, whether they are imagined or not. It is like a storehouse that preserves them for the time when they are needed. The organ for the activity of these two powers is the back cavity of the brain. The front part of that cavity is for the estimative power, and the back for the power of memory. All these powers then lead up to the power of thinking. Its organ is the middle cavity of the brain. It is the power that causes reflection to be set in motion and leads toward intellection. The soul is constantly moved by it, as the result of its constitutional desire to think. It wants to be free from the grip of power and the human kind of preparedness. It wants to proceed to active intellection by assimilating itself to the highest spiritual group, that of the angels, and to get into the first order of the spiritualia by perceiving them without the help of bodily organs. Therefore, the soul is constantly moving in that direction, it exchanges all humanity and human spirituality for angelicality of the highest stage, without the help of any acquired faculty but by virtue of a primary natural disposition that God has placed in it. As far as this, process, is concerned, human souls are of three kinds, one is by nature too weak to arrive at spiritual perception, therefore, it is satisfied to move downwards toward the perceptions of the senses and imagination and the formation of ideas with the help of the power of memory and the estimative power, according to limited rules and a special order. In this manner, people acquire perceptive and apperceptive knowledge, which is the product of thinking in the body. All this is, the result of the power of, imagination and limited in extent, since from the way it starts it can reach the primary, intelligibilia, but cannot go beyond them. Also, if they are corrupt, everything beyond them is also corrupt. This, as a rule, is the extent of human corporeal perception. It is the goal of the perceptions of scholars. It is in it that scholars are firmly grounded. A second kind of soul, through thinking, moves in the direction of spiritual intellection and a type of perception that does not need the organs of the body because of its innate preparedness for it. The perceptions of this kind of soul extend beyond the primary, intelligibilia, to which primary human perception is restricted, and cover the ground of inward observations, which are all intuitive they are unlimited as to their beginning and their end. They are the perceptions of saints, of men of mystical learning and divine knowledge, the blessed obtain them after death, in purgatory, Barzak, a, third, kind, of soul, is by nature suited to exchange humanity altogether, both corporeal and spiritual humanity, for angelicality of the highest stage, so that it may actually become an angel in the flash of a moment, glimpse the highest group within their own stage, and listen to essential speech and divine address during that moment. Individuals possessing this kind of soul, are prophets, God implanted and formed in them the natural ability to slough off humanity in that moment which is the state of revelation. God freed them from the lets and hindrances of the body, by which they were afflicted as human beings. He did this by means of isma, immunity from sin and error, infallibility, and straightforwardness, which he implanted in them and which gave them that particular outlook, and by means of a desire for divine worship which he centered in them and which converges from all sides toward that goal. They thus move toward the angelic 
stage, sloughing off humanity at will, by virtue of their natural constitution, and not with the help of any acquired faculty or craft. The prophets, move in that direction, slough off their humanity, and, once among the highest group, of angels, learn all that may there be learned. They then bring what they have learned back down to the level of the powers of human perception, as this is the way in which it can be transmitted to human beings. At times, this may happen in the form of a noise the prophet hears, it is like indistinct words from which he derives the idea conveyed to him, as soon as the noise has stopped, he retains and understands, the idea, at other times, the angel who conveys, the message, to the prophet appears to him in the form of a man who talks to him, and the prophet comprehends what he says. Learning the message from the angel, reverting to the level of human perception, and understanding the message conveyed to him, all this appears to take place in one moment, or rather, in a flash. It does not take place in time, but everything happens simultaneously, therefore, it appears to happen very quickly, for this reason, it is called wahi, revelation, because the root why has the meaning to hasten. It should be known that in the judgment of thorough scholars, the first, degree, the state of noise, is that of prophets who are not sent as messengers. The second degree, the state when an angel appears in the form of a man who addresses the prophet, is that of prophets who are sent as messengers. Therefore, it is more perfect than the first, degree. This is the meaning of the tradition in which the prophet explained revelation, in reply to a question by Al-Harit B. Hisham, asked how the revelation came to him, Muhammad replied, at times, it comes to me like the ringing of a bell. This affects me most, when it leaves me, I have retained what was said, at other times, the angel appears to me in the form of a man, he talks to me, and I retain the things he says, the first, case, affected him more, being the first attempt to advance from potential to actual contact, with the supernatural, thus, it was somewhat difficult, when the prophet returned, in this case, to the level of human perceptions, all he retained was auditory, impressions, all others were difficult, when the revelation was repeated and the messages became numerous, contact, with the supernatural, became easy, when the prophet returned to the level of human perceptions, now all his senses and especially the clearest sense, that of vision conveyed, the revelation. The use of the perfect tense I have retained in the first case, and of the present tense I retain in the second, is a meaningful stylistic distinction. In both cases, the words that were spoken, during the revelation, came in a disguise. In the first case, they appeared in the form of noise, which, according to accepted usage, is something different from speech. Muhammad indicated that understanding and comprehension followed immediately upon it after it had stopped. He properly used the perfect tense, which is suitable, to signify, what has ended or stopped, in order to indicate comprehension at the moment he perceived that, the noise, had ended and stopped. In the second case, the angel appeared in the form of a man who addressed the prophet and spoke to him. Comprehension, in this case, ran parallel with speech. Therefore, Muhammad properly used the present tense, which of necessity expresses renewed, repeated, activity. It should be known that, in general, the state of revelation presents difficulties and pains throughout. This has been indicated in the Quran, we shall lay upon you a heavy message. Aisha said, there was some anxiety in connection with the revelation, with which he had to struggle, she said, the revelation would come to him on very cold days. Nevertheless, when it left him, there was sweat on his forehead. 
This is the reason for his well-known remoteness, from sensual perception, and the choking, feeling, when in that condition, of which the prophet used to speak. The reason, as we have established, is that revelation means leaving one's humanity, in order to attain angelic perceptions and to hear the speech of the soul. This causes pain, since it means that an essence leaves its own essence and exchanges its own stage for the ultimate stage, of the angels. This is the meaning of the choking feeling which Muhammad referred to in connection with the beginning of revelation in his statement, and he, Gabriel, choked me until it became too much for me, then he released me. Then he said, read, and I replied, I cannot read. He did this a second and a third time, as the tradition tells. Gradual habituation too, the process of revelation, brings some relief, as compared to how it was before. It is for this reason that the earliest passages, surahs, and verses of the Quran, revealed to Muhammad in Mecca, are briefer than those revealed to him in Medina. One may compare the tradition about how the ninth surah, Surat al-Barah, was revealed, during the expedition to Tabuk. The whole of this, long surah, or most of it, was revealed to Muhammad while he was riding his camel. Before this, when he was in Mecca, part of one of the shortest surahs in the latter part of the Quran was revealed on one occasion, and the rest on another occasion. Also, one of the last revelations received in Medina was the verse of the religion, which is very long. Before this, in Mecca, the verses revealed were short, like those of the surahs or Aman, Ad-Dariyat, Al-Mudathir, Ad-Duha, and Al-Alaq, and similar surahs. This may serve as criterion for distinguishing the Meccan surahs and verses from the Mednese. God leads to that which is correct. This is the quintessence of prophecy, soothsaying, karna, is also one of the particular qualities of the human soul. This is as follows. In the previous discussion, we have always stated that the human soul is prepared to exchange its humanity for the spirituality that lies above, humanity. Human beings have an intimation of that, exchange, in prophets who are by nature fitted to achieve it, it has been established that they neither need acquired qualities for that exchange, nor are they dependent on any help from perceptions, notions, tasawa, bodily activities, be they speech or motion, or anything else. It is, with them, a natural change from humanity to angelicality in the flash of a moment. If this is so and if such preparedness exists in human nature, Logical classification requires that there must be another kind of human beings, as inferior to the first kind as anything that has something perfect as its opposite, must be inferior to that, perfect, opposite. Independence from all help in, achieving contact with the supernatural, is the opposite of dependence on help in connection with it. They are two very different things. Now, the classification of the world of existence requires that there must be a kind of human beings fitted by nature for the process of thinking voluntarily under the impulse of their rational power, whenever that power has a desire for it. But the rational power, is not by nature capable of, the process of supernatural perception. Thus, when its weakness prevents, the rational power, from, contact with the supernatural, it is natural for, the rational power, to get involved with particulars, either of sensual perception or of the imagination, such as transparent bodies, animal bones, speech in rhymed prose, or whatever bird or animal may present itself. A person whose rational power is thus engaged, attempts to retain such sensual or imaginary perceptions, since he depends on their help in attaining the supernatural perception he desires. They give him a sort of assistance, the power which in, 
Such persons, constitutes the starting point of supernatural perception is soothsaying. The souls of such persons are inferior by nature and unable to attain perfection. Therefore, they have a better perception of particulars than of universals. They get involved with the former and neglect the latter. Therefore, the power of imagination is most strongly developed in those persons, because it is the organ of the particulars. The particulars, completely pervade, the power of the imagination, both in the sleeping and the waking state. They are ever ready and present in it. The power of imagination brings, the particulars, to the attention of, those persons, and serves as a mirror in which they are seen constantly. The soothsayer is not able to achieve perfection in his perception of the intelligibilia, because the revelation he receives is inspired by devils. The highest state this type of person can reach is to achieve disregard for the senses, with the help of rhymed prose and the use of words of an identical structure at the end of successive cola, and, thereby, to attain an imperfect contact of the sort described, with supernatural things. From that motion and the foreign support that accompanies it, his heart receives some inspiration to express itself in words. The soothsayer, thus, often speaks the truth and agrees with reality. Often, however, what he says are falsehoods, because he supplements his deficiency with something foreign to, different from, and incompatible with, his perceptive essence. Thus, truth and falsehood are humble together in him, and he is not trustworthy. He often takes refuge in guesses and hypotheses, because, in his self-deception, he desires to have, supernatural, perception and is willing to cheat those who ask him, for information. Men who use such rhymed prose are distinguished by the name of soothsayers, Kahin, P.L. Kuan, they rank highest among their kind. Muhammad said, regarding something of the sort, this belongs to the rhymed prose of the soothsayers. The use of the genitive construction, rhymed prose of, indicates that Muhammad considered rhymed prose a distinctive, mark of the soothsayer. He also questioned Ibn Sayyid, in order to find out about him, and he asked him how that thing came to him. Ibn Said replied, It comes to me in the form of both truth and falsehood, whereupon Muhammad said, You are confused with regard to the matter, he meant that prophecy is characterized by truthfulness and can in no way be affected by falsehood, for prophecy is a direct and independent contact of the essence of the prophet with the most high group, the angels. Because of his weakness, the soothsayer depends on the help of foreign notions, Tarsawa. These foreign notions, enter into his perception and mingle with the perception toward which he aspires. He thus becomes confused by them. So it is that falsehood makes its way to his, door. It is, therefore, impossible, for his activity, to be prophecy. We have stated that the highest rank of soothsaying is the state in which rhymed prose is used, because the support derived from rhymed prose is lighter than any other support, such as that derived from vision or hearing. Such light support, as is given by the use of rhymed prose, points to nearness of contact and perception and to a certain freedom from weakness. Some people assume that soothsaying of this type stopped with the time of prophecy, as the result of the stoning of the devils with meteors, in view of the prophetic mission, which occurred in order to keep them away from heavenly information, as is mentioned in the Koran. The soothsayers had received heavenly information from the devils, and now, from the day on which the devils were stoned, soothsaying ceased to exist. There is no proof for this contention. Soothsayers obtain knowledge from their own souls as well as from the devils, as we have established. Furthermore, the verse of the Quran shows only that the devils were kept away from one particular kind of heavenly information, namely, 
that connected with the prophetic mission. They were not kept from other information. Also, Su saying stopped only in view of the existence of prophecy. It may afterwards have returned to its former state. This would seem to be an obvious fact, because all such supernatural perceptions are in abeyance at the time of prophecy, just as stars and lamps lose their brilliance beside the sun. Prophecy is the greatest light, in whose presence every other light is obscured or disappears. Some philosophers think that, Su saying, exists only in view of prophecy, and then stops. This happens at each occurrence of prophecy. They argue that the existence of prophecy needs a particular constellation that makes it necessary. The perfection of that constellation coincides with the perfection of the particular prophecy to which the constellation has reference. As long as the constellation is imperfect, it requires the existence of some imperfect related element. This is the meaning of soothsayer, as we have established it. The perfect state of the constellation is preceded by an imperfect one, which requires the existence of one or more soothsayers. When the constellation reaches perfection, the prophet's existence reaches perfection. The constellations that point to the existence of an inferior element such as soothsaying have passed by, and soothsaying ceases to exist. This theory is based upon the assumption that any part of a particular constellation must exercise part of the influence that the constellation, in its perfect state, would exercise. This assumption is not fully acceptable. It may be that a particular constellation exercises its influence only when it is taken on its proper form. If some aspects are missing, it may exercise no influence whatever, not even, as they say, a restricted influence. Soothsayers who are a prophet's contemporaries are aware of the prophet's truthfulness and the significance of his miracle, since they derive some intuitive experience from prophecy, such as every human being derives from sleep. Intellectual awareness of this relationship is stronger in the soothsayer than in the sleeper. What prevents soothsayers from acknowledging the truthfulness of the prophet, and causes them to deny him, is simply their misguided desire to be prophets themselves. This leads them to spiteful opposition. This happened to Amarb. Abi S. Salt, who desired to be a prophet. It also happened to Ibn Sayyid, Musaylima, and others when faith gains the upper hand and they stop aspiring to become prophets themselves, they make the most faithful of believers. This happened to Tulea al-Asadi and Karibbi. Al-Aswad, the actions of these two men in the Muslim conquest show that they were faithful believers. Dream Visions Real dream vision is an awareness on the part of the rational soul in its spiritual essence, of glimpses of the forms of events. While the soul is spiritual, the forms of events have actual existence in it, as is the case with all spiritual essences, the soul becomes spiritual through freeing itself from bodily matters and corporeal perceptions. This happens to the soul, in the form of, glimpses through the agency of sleep, as we shall mention. Through, these glimpses, the soul, gains the knowledge of future events that it desires and by means of which it regains the perceptions that, properly, belong to it. When this process is weak and indistinct, the soul applies to it allegory and imaginary pictures, in order to gain, the desired knowledge. Such allegory, then, necessitates interpretation. When, on the other hand, this process is strong, it can dispense with allegory. Then, no interpretation is necessary, because, the process, is then free from imaginary pictures. The occurrence, in the soul, 
of such glimpses is caused by the fact that the soul is potentially a spiritual essence, supplemented by the body and the perceptions of the body. Its essence, thus, eventually becomes pure intellection, and its existence becomes perfect in actuality. The soul, now, is a spiritual essence having perception without the help of any of the bodily organs. However, among the spiritualia, it is of a lower species than the angels, who inhabit the highest stage, and who never had to supplement their essences with corporeal perceptions or anything else. The preparedness for spirituality comes to the soul, as long as it is in the body. There is a special kind of preparedness, such as saints have, and there is a general kind common to all human beings. This is what dream vision means. In the case of the prophets, this preparedness is a preparedness to exchange humanity for pure angelicality, which is the highest rank of spiritualia. It expresses itself repeatedly during revelations. It exists when, the prophet, returns to the level of corporeal perceptions. Whatever perception, the prophet, has at that moment is clearly similar to what happens in sleep, even though sleep is much inferior to, revelation. Because of this similarity, the lawgiver, Muhammad, defined dream vision as being the 46th, or, according to other recensions, the 43rd, or the 70th part of prophecy. None of these, fractions, is meant to be taken literally, they are to indicate the great degree of difference between the various stages, of supernatural perception. This is shown by the reference to 70 in one of the recensions. The number 70 is used by the Arabs to express, the idea of, a large number. The reference to 46 has been explained by some scholars as follows. In its beginning, the revelation took the form of dream visions for six months, that is, for half a year. The whole duration of, Muhammad's, prophecy in Mecca and Medina was 23 years. Half a year, thus, is 1 46th, of the whole duration of prophecy. This theory cannot be verified. The given, figures, apply only to Muhammad. How can we know whether they also apply to other prophets? Moreover, this, theory, describes the relationship of prophecy to dream vision in point of time only, and does not consider the true character of dream visions in relation to the true character of prophecy. If our previous remarks were clear, it will be realized that the fraction refers to the relationship between the primary preparedness general to all mankind, and the close preparedness limited to the, prophets, and natural to them. The remote preparedness is commonly found among human beings, however, there are many obstacles and hindrances that prevent man from translating it into actuality. One of the greatest hindrances is the external senses. God, therefore, created man, in such a way that the veil of the senses could be lifted through sleep, which is a natural function of man. When that veil is lifted, the soul is ready to learn the things it desires to know in the world of truth. Hock, at times, it catches a glimpse of what it seeks. Therefore, the lawgiver, Muhammad, classified dream visions among the bearers of glad tidings, Nubasharat. He said, nothing remains of prophecy except the bearers of glad tidings. Asked what they were, he said, a good dream vision, beheld by, or shown to, a good man. The reason why the veil of the senses is lifted in sleep, is as follows. The perceptions and actions of the rational soul are the result of the corporeal animal spirit. This spirit is a fine vapor which is concentrated in the left cavity of the heart, as stated in the anatomical works of Galen and others. It spreads with the blood in the veins and arteries, and makes sensual perception, motion, and all the other corporeal actions possible. 
Its finest part goes up to the brain, there, it is tempered by the coldness of, the brain, and it affects the actions of the powers located in the cavities of the brain. The rational soul perceives and acts only by means of that vaporous spirit, it is connected with it. This connection is, the result of the wisdom of creation which requires that nothing fine can influence anything coarse. Of all the corporeal matters, only the animal spirit is fine. Therefore, it is receptive to the influence of the essence, which differs from it only in respect of corporeality, that is, the rational soul. Thus, through the medium of, the animal spirit, the influence of the rational soul reaches the body. We have stated before that the perception of the rational soul is of two kinds. There is an external perception through the five senses, and an inward perception through the cerebral powers. All these perceptions divert the rational soul from the perception for which it is prepared by nature, namely, that, of the essences of the spiritualia, which are higher than it. Since the external senses are corporeal, they are subject to weakness and lassitude as the result of exertion and fatigue, and to spiritual exhaustion through too much activity. Therefore, God gave them the desire to rest, so that perfect perception may be renewed afterwards. Such, rest, is accomplished by the retirement of the animal spirit from all the external senses and its return to the inward sense. This process is supported by the cold that covers the body during the night. Under the influence of the cold of the night, the natural heat repairs to the innermost recesses of the body and turns from its exterior to the interior. It thus guides its vehicle, the animal spirit, into the interior of the body. This is the reason why human beings, as a rule, sleep only at night. The spirit, thus, withdraws from the external senses and returns to the inward powers. The preoccupations and hindrances of sensual perception lessen their hold over the soul, and it now returns to the forms that exist in the power of memory. Then, through a process of synthesis and analysis, these forms, are shaped into imaginary pictures. Most of these pictures are customary ones, because, the soul, has, only, shortly before withdrawn from the conventional objects of sensual perception. It now transmits them to the common sense, which combines all the five external senses, to be perceived in the manner of, those, five senses. Frequently, however, the soul turns to its spiritual essence in concert with the inward powers. It then accomplishes the spiritual kind of perception for which it is fitted by nature. It takes up some of the forms of things that have become inherent in its essence at that time. Imagination seizes on those perceived forms, and pictures them in the customary molds either realistically or allegorically. Pictured allegorically, they require interpretation, the synthetic and analytic activity which, the soul, applies to the forms in the power of memory, before it perceives its share of glimpses, of the supernatural, is, what is called in the Quran, confused dreams. According to, the sound tradition of, the Sahih, the Prophet said, there are three kinds of dream visions. There are dream visions from God, dream visions from the angels, and dream visions from Satan. This threefold division agrees with our preceding statement. Clear dream visions are from God. Allegorical dream visions, which call for interpretation, are from the angels, and confused dreams are from Satan, because they are altogether futile, as Satan is the source of futility. This is what dream vision really is, and how it is caused and encouraged by sleep. It is a particular quality of the human soul common to all mankind, nobody is free from it. Every human being has, more than once, 
seen something in his sleep that turned out to be true when he awakened. He knows for certain that the soul must necessarily have supernatural perception in sleep. If this is possible in the realm of sleep, it is not impossible in other conditions, because the perceiving essence is one and its qualities are always present. God guides toward the truth. Dream Words Note, most of the, aforementioned supernatural perception by means of dream visions, occurs to human beings unintentionally and without their having power over it. The soul occupies itself with a thing, as a result, it obtains that glimpse, of the supernatural, while it is asleep, and it sees that thing, it does not plan it that way. In the Gaia and other books by practitioners of magic, reference is made to words that should be mentioned on falling asleep so as to cause the dream vision to be about the things one desires. These words are called by, the magicians, dream words, al-haluma. In the Gaya, Maslama mentioned a dream word that he called the dream word of the perfect nature. It consists of saying, upon falling asleep and after obtaining freedom of the inner senses and finding one's way clear, for supernatural perception, the following non-Arabic words, Tamai's bodon yaswada wakhads norfana gadis. The person should then mention what he wants, and the thing he asks for will be shown to him in his sleep. A man is said to have done this after he had eaten but little and done dick exercise for several nights. A person appeared to him and said, I am your perfect nature. A question was put to that person, and he gave the man the information he desired. With the help of these words, I have myself had remarkable dream visions, through which I learned things about myself that I wanted to know. However, the existence of such dream words, is no proof that the intention to have a dream vision can produce it. The dream words produce a preparedness in the soul for the dream vision. If that preparedness is a strong one, the soul, will be more likely to obtain that for which it is prepared. A person may arrange for whatever preparedness he likes, but that is no assurance that the thing for which preparations have been made will actually happen. The power to prepare for a thing is not the same as power over the thing, itself. This should be known and considered in similar cases. God is wise and knowing. Other types of divination In the human species we find individuals who foretell things before they take place. They have a special natural qualification for it. Through that qualification, they are distinguished from all other human beings. They do not have recourse to a craft for their predictions, nor do they get them with the help of astral influences or anything else. Their forecasts are the necessary result of their natural disposition. Among such people are diviners, Araf, men who gaze into transparent bodies such as mirrors or bowls of water, men who examine the hearts, livers, and bones of animals, men who draw auguries from birds and wild animals, and men who cast pebbles, grains of wheat, or, date, pits. All these things are found among mankind, no one can deny them or be ignorant of them. Statements concerning supernatural things are also placed upon the tongues of the insane, who are thus able to give information about, supernatural things. Sleeping and dying persons, being about to die or to fall asleep, likewise speak about supernatural things. Men who have followed Sufi training have, as is well known, as acts of divine grace, obtained perceptions of supernatural things. The Different Kinds of Supernatural Perception We are now going to discuss all these ways of, supernatural, perception. We are going to start with soothsaying, then, we shall discuss all the other kinds, one by one. Before that, however, 
we want to discuss how the human soul, as it exists in all the types of human beings mentioned, is prepared for supernatural perception. This is as follows. The soul, is a spiritual essence which, as we have mentioned before, is the only spiritual being that exists potentially. It exchanges potentiality for actuality with the help of the body and, bodily, conditions. This is something everyone can attain to. Now, everything that exists potentially has matter and form. The form of the soul, through which its existence materializes, is identical with perception and intellection. The soul at first exists potentially. It is prepared for perception and for the reception of the universal and particular forms. Its growth and actual existence then materialize through keeping company with the body, through the things to which, the body, accustoms, the soul, when, the former's, sensual perceptions are foisted upon, the latter, and through the universal ideas which, the soul itself, abstracts from the sensual perceptions of the body. It intellectualizes the forms time after time, until perception and intellection become the actual form of the soul. Thus, its essence materializes. The soul, then, is like matter, and, through perception, the forms come to it one after the other in an uninterrupted sequence. This is why we find that a child in the earliest stages of his growth is unable to achieve the perception which comes to the soul from its essence, either in his sleep or through removal, of the veil of sense perception, or anything else. For the form of the soul, which is its very essence, namely, perception and intellection, has not yet materialized, in the child, nor has the power of the soul to abstract the universals materialized. Later on, when the essence of, the soul, has materialized in actuality, the soul has two kinds of perception, as long as it remains in the body, one through the organs of the body, for which the soul is enabled by the corporeal perceptions, and the other through its own essence, without any intermediary. The soul is prevented from, the latter kind of perception, by its immersion in the body and the senses, and the preoccupations of, body and senses. By means of corporeal perception, for which the senses were originally created, they always draw the soul to the external. Frequently, however, the soul plunges from the external into the internal. Then, the veil of the body is lifted for a moment, either by means of a quality that belongs to every human being, such as sleep, or by means of a quality that is found only in certain human beings, such as soothsaying or casting, of pebbles, etc., or by means of exercises such as those practiced by, certain, Sufis who practice the removal, of the veil of sense perception. At such moments, the soul turns to the essences of the highest group, the angels, which are higher than itself. This is possible, because in, the order of, existence the stages of the soul and the angels are connected with each other, as we established earlier. These essences are spiritual, they are pure perception and intellects in action, they contain the forms and realities of the existentia, as was, just, mentioned. Something of those forms is then disclosed in, the soul, it derives some knowledge from them. Frequently, it transmits the perceived forms to the imagination which, in turn, puts them into the customary molds. The soul, then, has recourse to sensual perception to explain the things it has perceived, either in their abstract form or in the molds into which, they were put by the imagination. In this way it gives information about them. This is how the preparedness of the soul for supernatural perception must be explained. Let us now return to the explanation we promised, of the various kinds, of supernatural perception. Persons who gaze into transparent bodies, 
such as mirrors, walls, or water, and examine the hearts, livers, and bones of animals, as well as those who cast pebbles and date pits, all belong to the class of soothsayers. Only, they are constitutionally less well fitted for supernatural perception than soothsayers. The soothsayer does not need to make much of an effort in order to lift the veil of sensual perception. They, however, expend much effort to concentrate all sensual perception in one particular sense, the noblest one, which is vision. It is applied exclusively to whatever plain visual object has been selected for concentration until the perception about which information is to be given appears. It is often thought that the place where those who gaze into mirrors see something is the surface of the mirror. This is not so. They continue gazing at the surface of the mirror until it, the surface, disappears. Between their eyes and the mirror appears a veil like a white cloud. In it, forms are pictured, and, these pictures, are the objects they perceive. This gives them the facts of a negative or positive character they wanted to obtain, and they pass on, these facts, as they perceive them. Neither the mirror nor the forms perceived in it are now present to them. A different kind of perception originates in them in that state. It is a psychic one that has nothing to do with vision. Through it, objects of psychic perception take on shape, for observation, by sensual perception, as is known. Something similar happens to those who examine the hearts and livers of animals, and to those who gaze into water, bowls, and similar things. Among these people we have observed persons who keep their senses occupied only by means of incense, as well as incantations, in order to be prepared, for supernatural perception. Then, they tell what they have perceived, they think that they see the forms take on concrete shapes in the air, telling them what they want to know in the form of pictures and illusions. These persons are less remote from sensual perception than the first group. The world is full of remarkable things. Augury, Zager, is talk about supernatural things which originates in some people when a bird or animal appears, and they reflect about it after it has gone. It is a power in the soul that calls for sagacity and the ability to think about the things of interest which augurs see or hear. As we mentioned earlier, the power of imagination is strong in augurs, and they exert that power in their researches, while depending on the help given by things they have seen or heard. This gives them some supernatural perception. The power of imagination acts here as it does in sleepers. When the senses are asleep, the power of imagination intervenes among the things seen in the waking state, and combines them with the products of its own thinking. Thus, the power of imagination brings about vision. In the insane, the rational soul is but weakly connected with the body, because the humors, as a rule, are corrupt and have a weak animal spirit. Therefore, the soul belonging to the body of an insane person is not deeply immersed in the senses. The painful disease of deficiency that affects it keeps it too much occupied. Frequently, it was pushed into attaching itself to the insane by some other satanic spirituality, which clings to them and which the soul itself is too weak to keep away. The insane thus become possessed. When they have become possessed in this manner, either because of the corruption of their constitution as the result of the essential corruption of their soul, or because of the onslaught the satanic souls make upon them when they are attached to their bodies, they are totally removed from sensual perception. They perceive a glimpse of the world of their soul. Their soul receives the impress of forms which, in turn, are transformed by the imagination. In this condition, they frequently speak without wanting to speak. Supernatural, perception in all these, 
groups, contains truth and falsehood mixed together, for although they may achieve the loss of sensual perception, it is only with the help of foreign notions, tasawa, that they achieve contact, with the supernatural, as we have established. This leads to untruthfulness, which is to be found, in these, ways of supernatural, perception, the diviners, Araf, somehow enjoy this kind of perception, but they do not have the same contact, with the supernatural, they concentrate their thinking upon the matter in which they are interested and apply guesses and hypotheses to it, they base themselves upon an unfounded assumption as to what basically constitutes contact with, and perception of, the supernatural, they claim acquaintance with the supernatural, but in reality, their procedure, has nothing to do with it, this is the manner in which such, supernatural knowledge, is obtained, Al-Masudi discussed the subject in his Moj ad Dahab. he did not hit upon the right explanation, it is evident from his discussion that he was not firmly grounded in the various kinds of, pertinent, knowledge, he merely reports what he learned from people experienced in the subject, and from others, all the kinds of, supernatural, perception mentioned are found in man, the Arabs used to repair to soothsayers in order to learn about forthcoming events, they consulted them in their quarrels, to learn the truth by means of supernatural perception. Literature contains much information about this matter. In pre-Islamic times, Shik, of the tribe of Onmar b. Nizar, and Seish, of the tribe of Mazin b. Ghassan, were famous, soothsayers, the latter, used to fold up like a garment, as he had no bones save for his skull. A famous story is their interpretation of the dream vision of Robia b. Nasser, in which they informed him that the Abyssinians would take possession of the Yemen, that the Mudar would rule after them, and that the Mohammedan prophecy would make its appearance among the Quraysh. Another famous story is that of the dream vision of the Mabedan, Seish interpreted it when the Persian emperor, Hosror, sent Obad al-Masih to him with, the dream. On that occasion, Seish, informed him about the prophecy, of Muhammad, and the, future, destruction of the Persian realm. All this is well known, there were also many diviners among the Arabs, they are mentioned by the Arabs in their poems. One poet, said, I said to the diviner of the Yamama, cure me, for if you cure me, you are indeed a physician. Another poet said, I promised to give the diviner of the Yamama whatever, he would ask me for, and, I promised the same, to the diviner of Najd, if they, would cure me, of my love, but they said, let God cure you, by God, we have no, power over, the disease, that you carry around with you, in your body, the diviner of the Yamama is Riyab Isla, and the diviner of Najd is Al-Ablaik Al-Asadi, some people have another way of supernatural perception, it occurs in the stage of transition from waking to sleeping, and is in, the form of unconsciously, speaking about the thing one wants to know and thereby obtaining supernatural knowledge of the matter as desired. This happens only during the transition from waking to sleeping, when one has lost the power to control one's words. Such a person talks as if by innate compulsion, the most he can do is to hear and understand what, he says. Words of a similar nature come from those who are about to be killed, at the moment when their heads are being severed from their trunks. We have been informed that certain criminal tyrants used to kill their prisoners in order to learn their own future from the words the prisoners would utter when they were about to be killed. It was unpleasant information they received from them. In the Gayar, 
Maslama similarly mentioned that when a human being is placed in a barrel of sesame oil and kept in it for 40 days, is fed with figs and nuts until his flesh is gone and only the arteries and sutures of the skull remain, and is then taken out of the oil and exposed to the drying action of the air, he will answer all special and general questions regarding the future that may be asked. This is detestable sorcery, however, it shows what remarkable things exist in the world of man. There are men who attempt to obtain supernatural perception through exercise, they attempt an artificial, state of, death through self-mortification, they kill all corporeal powers, in themselves, and wipe out all influences of those powers that color the soul in various ways. This is achieved by, concentrated thinking, and doing without food for long, periods. It is definitely known that when death descends upon the body, sensual perception and the veil it constitutes disappear, and the soul beholds its essence and its world. These men, attempt to produce, artificially before death, the experience they will have after death, and to have their soul behold the supernatural. Other such people are the men who train themselves in sorcery, they train themselves in these things, in order to be able to behold the supernatural and to be active in the various worlds. Most such live in the intemperate zones of the north and the south, especially in India, where they are called yogis. They possess a large literature on how such exercises are to be done. The stories about them in this connection are remarkable. The Sufi training is a religious one. It is free from any such reprehensible intentions. The Sufis aspire to total concentration upon God and upon the approach to Him, in order to obtain the mystical experiences of Gnosis and Divine Oneness. In addition to their training in concentration and hunger, the Sufis feed on dikr exercises by which their devotion to that training can fully materialize. When the soul is reared on dikr exercises, it comes closer to the Gnosis of God, whereas, without it, it comes to be a satanic one. Whatever supernatural knowledge or activity is achieved by the Sufis is accidental, and was not originally intended. Had it been intentional, the devotion of the Sufis, who intended to have supernatural perception, would have been directed towards something other than God, namely, towards supernatural activity and vision. What a losing business that would have been. In reality, it would have been polytheism. A. Sufi, has said, whoever prefers Gnosis for the sake of Gnosis comes out for the second, stage of being. Through their devotion, Sufis, intend, to come near, the master, and nothing else. If, meanwhile, some, supernatural perception, is obtained, it is accidental and unintentional. Many, Sufis, shun, supernatural perception, when it accidentally happens to them, and pay no attention to it, they want God only for the sake of his essence, and nothing else. It is well known that, supernatural perception, occurs among the, Sufis. They call their supernatural experiences and mind-reading physiognomy, farasa, and removal, of the veil of sense perception, koshif. Their experiences of, supernatural, activity they call acts of divine grace, karama. None of these things is unworthy of them. However, Professor Abu Ishaq al-Isfaraini and Abu Muhammad B. Abi Zaid al-Maliki, among others, disapproved of it, in order to avoid any risk of, prophetic, miracles becoming confused with something else. However, the speculative theologians rely on the advanced challenge, to Hadi, as the distinguishing characteristic of the, prophetic, miracle. This is sufficient, according to, the sound tradition of, the Sahi, Muhammad said, among you, there are men who are spoken to, and Umar is one of them.
the men around Muhammad, as is well known, had experiences of a sort that confirms the fact that mystics and pious persons may have some sort of supernatural perception. For instance, there is the story of Umar saying, O Sariah, aware of the mountain. Sariah is Sariah B. Zunaim, he was the general of a Muslim army in the Iraq during the conquest. He had gotten into a battle with the polytheists, he thought of withdrawing, near him, there was a mountain toward which he was directing himself, and where the enemy was lying in ambush. This came, supernaturally, to Umar's attention while he was preaching from the pulpit in Medina. He called out to him, O Sariah, beware of the mountain. Sariah heard it, there where he was, in faraway Iraq, and he also saw, Umar, there in person. This story is well known. Something similar happened to Abu Bakr in connection with his last will, addressed to his daughter Aisha. He had given her a certain amount of dates from his orchard, as a gift, and then, when he was near death, he suggested to her that she harvest them, so that the, other, heirs would not get them. Then he said, they are your two brothers and your two sisters, whereupon Aisha said, there is asthma, but who is the other? Abu Bakr replied, I see that the child in Bint Kaija's womb is a girl, and so it was. This is mentioned in the Mawata in the chapter on gifts that are not permitted. The men around Muhammad, and the pious and exemplary men after them had many similar experiences. However, the Sufis say that such experiences are rare in the time of prophecy, because, in the presence of the Prophet, the adept of mysticism cannot continue in his mystic state. They go so far as to say that the adept of mysticism who comes to Medina is deprived of his mystic state, so long as he remains there and until he leaves. May God provide us with guidance, and may he lead us to the truth. Among the adepts of mysticism are fools and imbeciles who are more like insane persons than like rational beings. Nonetheless, they deservedly attain stations of sainthood and the mystic states of the righteous. The persons with mystical experience who learn about them know that such is their condition, although they are not legally responsible. The information they give about the supernatural is remarkable. They are not bound by anything. They speak absolutely freely about it and tell remarkable things. When jurists see they are not legally responsible, they frequently deny that they have attained any mystical station, since sainthood can be obtained only through divine worship. This is an error. God bestows his grace upon whomever he wants to. The attainment of sainthood is not restricted to the correct performance of divine worship or anything else. When the human soul is firmly established as existent, God may single it out for whatever gifts of his he wants to give it. The rational souls of such people are not non-existent, nor are they corrupt, as is the case with the insane. They, merely, lack the intellect that is the basis of legal responsibility. That intellect, is a special attribute of the soul. It means various kinds of knowledge that are necessary to man and that guide his speculative ability and teach him how to make a living and organize his home. One may say that if he knows how to make a living, he has no excuse left not to accept legal responsibility, so that he may prepare for his life after death. Now, a person who lacks that, special, attribute, of the soul-called intellect, still does not lack the soul itself, and has not forgotten his reality. He has reality, though he lacks the intellect entailing legal responsibility, that is, the knowledge of how to make a living. This is not absurd. God does not select his servants for gnosis only on the basis of, the performance of, some legal duty. If this is correct, 
It should be known that the state of these men is frequently confused with that of the insane, whose rational souls are corrupted and who belong to, the category of, animals. There are signs by which one can distinguish the two groups. One of them is that fools are found devoting themselves constantly to certain exercises and divine worship, though not in the way the religious law requires, since, as we have stated, they are not legally responsible. The insane, on the other hand, have no, particular, devotion whatever. Another sign is that fools were created stupid, and were stupid from their earliest days. The insane, on the other hand, lose their minds after some portion of their life has passed, as the result of natural bodily accidents. When this happens to them and their rational souls become corrupt, they are lost. A further sign is the great activity of fools among men. It may be good or bad. They do not have to have permission, because for them there is no legal responsibility. The insane, on the other hand, show no, such, activity. The course of our discussion caused us to insert the preceding paragraph, God leads toward that which is correct. Other alleged ways of supernatural perception. Some people think that there are ways of supernatural perception not involving remoteness from sensual perception. Such, are the astrologers who believe in astrological indications, consequences of the positions of, stars, in the firmament, influences of, the stars, upon the elements, and results from the tempering of the natures of, the stars, when they look at each other, as well as effects of such tempers upon the air. Astrologers, as a matter of fact, have nothing to do with the supernatural, it is all guesswork and conjectures based upon, the assumed existence of, astral influence, and a resulting conditioning of the air. Such guesswork, is accompanied by an additional measure of sagacity enabling scholars to determine the distribution, of astral influence, upon particular individuals in the world, as Ptolemy said. We shall explain the futility of astrology in the proper place, if God wills, if it were established, as a fact, it would, at best, be guessing and conjecturing, it has nothing whatever to do with, the supernatural perception, we have mentioned. Geomancy Other such people include certain men of the common people who, to discover the supernatural and know the future, invented a craft they called sand writing, geomancy, after the material one uses for it. This craft consists in forming combinations of dots in four ranks, the resulting combinations, differ in that the, four, ranks are made up of different or identical, arrangements, of even or odd, this makes sixteen combinations, for if, all four ranks, hold evens or, all, odds, we have two combinations, if one rank only has an even, we have four combinations, if two ranks have an even, we have six combinations, and if three ranks have an even, we have four combinations. This makes altogether 16 combinations, the sand diviners have given different names to the different combinations and classified them as lucky or unlucky, as is done with the stars. 4. The 16 combinations, they have assumed, the existence of, 16 houses, they think that the houses are natural and that they correspond to the 12 signs of the zodiac and the 4 cardines. They have attributed to each combination a house, lucky, or unlucky, influences, and significance with regard to one particular group, of people, in the world of the elements. The sand diviners, have thus invented a discipline that runs parallel to astrology and the system of astrological judgments. However, 
the astrological judgments are based upon natural indications, as Ptolemy assumes. The indications of sound writing, on the other hand, are conventional. Ptolemy discussed only nativities and conjunctions which, in his opinion, come within the influence of the stars and the positions of the spheres upon the world of the elements. Subsequent astrologers, however, discussed questions, interrogations, in that they attempted to discover the innermost thoughts by attributing them to the various houses of the firmament and drawing conclusions concerning them, according to the judgments governing each particular astral house. They are those mentioned by Ptolemy, it should be known that the innermost thoughts concern psychic knowledge, which does not belong to the world of the elements, they do not come within the influence of the stars or the positions of the spheres, nor do, the stars and the positions of the spheres, give any indications with regard to them. The branch of questions, interrogations, has indeed been accepted in astrology as a way of making deductions from the stars and positions of the spheres. However, it is used where it is not natural for it to be used, when the sand diviners came, they discontinued use of the stars and the positions of the spheres, because they found it difficult to establish the altitude of stars by means of instruments and to find the adjusted positions of the stars by means of calculations. Therefore, they invented their combinations of figures. They assumed that there were sixteen, according to the houses of the firmament and the cardines, and they specified that they were lucky, unlucky, or mixed, like the planets. They limited themselves to the sextile aspect. They made judgments in accordance with the combinations of figures, as is done in the interrogation branch of astrology. In both cases, the use made of the data is not a natural one, as we stated before. Many city dwellers who had no work in order to make a living tried sand divination. They composed works teaching the foundation and principles of sand divination. This was done by Azainati and others. Some sand diviners attempt supernatural perception in that they occupy their senses with study of the combinations of figures. They thus reach a state of preparedness, like those who are by nature fitted for preparedness, as we shall mention later on. These men are the noblest class of sand diviners. In general, they assume that sand writing originated with the prophets of old. They frequently ascribe its invention to Daniel or Idris, as is being done with all the crafts. They, also, frequently claim that, sand writing, is enjoined by the religious law. As a proof of this, contention of theirs, they quote the following tradition of Muhammad, there was a prophet who wrote, and whoever concurs with his writing this is it. However, this tradition contains no evidence for the claim that sand writing is enjoined by the religious law, as some people assume. The meaning of the tradition is, there was a prophet who wrote, that is, the revelation came to him while he was writing. It is not absurd to assume that such was the custom of some prophets, for prophets differ in their ways of perceiving the revelation. God said, we distinguished the messengers, by giving the ones preeminence, over the others. When some of them received the revelation, the angel spoke first to them, without any request or motive, on their part. Others had a human motive, resulting from contact with human affairs, in that their people asked them to explain some difficult problem, some obligation of duty, or the like. Therefore, they directed their devotions to the divine, and in that way God revealed to them what they wanted to know. Logical, classification here suggests the existence of another division. Revelation may come to a person who is not prepared for it in any way, as in the aforementioned instance, or it may come to a person who is prepared for it in some way. 
In the Israelite stories, it is reported that a prophet was prepared for the coming of the revelation by hearing sweet melodious voices this report is not established as correct, but it is not improbable. God singles out his prophets and messengers for whatever, favors, he wishes. This was reported to us on the authority of a great Sufi, who attempts to attain remoteness from sensual perception by listening to music. By this means he becomes completely free for his, supernatural, perceptions, in the station he is in, which, it is true, is inferior to prophecy. And there is nobody among us who does not have a known station. If this is established and if, as we have mentioned before, certain sand diviners attempt to remove, the veil of sense perception, by occupying their senses with the study of combinations of figures, they may attain intuitive supernatural revelation, koshif, through complete freedom from sense perception. They may exchange bodily perceptions for spiritual ones both of which have been explained earlier. This is a kind of soothsaying, of the type of gazing at bones, water, and mirrors, and it distinguishes, these sand diviners, from those who restrict themselves to techniques that achieve supernatural perception by means of sagacity and conjecturing, but who do not relinquish corporeal perception and continue to wander in the realm of guesswork. Some prophets achieved preparedness for being addressed by the angel, in their prophetical station, by writing, exactly as people who are not prophets may achieve preparedness for spiritual perception and the relinquishment of human perception by the same means. In the case of, sand diviners, however, what they achieve is spiritual perception only, whereas prophets achieve an angelic perception by means of divine revelation. The prophets have nothing to do with the stations of the sand diviners, whose perceptions are based on sagacity and conjecturing. They do not make it part of the religious law for any human being to speak about and discuss the supernatural, the statement in the tradition, and whoever concurs with his writing, this is it, means, he is right, in view of the fact that the writing was supported by the revelation that came to that particular prophet, whose custom it was to have the revelation come to him while he was writing. Or, the tradition may be a compliment and indicate that the prophet had reached a high competence in the use of sand writing, without, implying, the existence of a connection between, revelation, and, sand writing, because in this way the prophet was prepared for revelation, which, therefore, concurred with, the conclusions reached from sand writing. But were the prophet to take, those conclusions, from the writing alone, without the concurrence of revelation, they would not be right. This is the meaning of the tradition, and God knows better. The tradition does not indicate that sand writing is enjoined by religious law, nor that it is permissible to practice sand writing to obtain supernatural perception, as sand diviners in the cities do. Some of them may be inclined to this opinion, on the basis that what, any, prophet did is accepted law, and that sand writing, therefore, is enjoined by the religious law according to the principle, held by some, that the religious law of those who came before us is religious law for us. This does not apply in this, case, law only results when it is enjoined by messengers upon the various nations. This, particular, tradition, however, indicates no, thing of the sort, it indicates only that the particular condition was that of one of the prophets, and it is possible that it was not enjoined as a religious law. Therefore, it would not be a religious law, neither one restricted to the people of, that particular prophet, nor one common to his people and to others. The tradition, merely indicates that it is a condition that may occur in the instance of a particular prophet, without being generally applicable to mankind. 
This is all we wanted to make clear here. God gives the correct inspiration. If, in their self-deception, sand diviners want to discover something supernatural, they take paper, or sand, or flour, and form dots in, four, lines in accordance with the number of the four ranks. This is repeated four times, they thus obtain sixteen lines, they then deduct, some, dots in pairs, the remainder, for each line, whether it is even or odd, is put into the rank to which it belongs according to order. This results in four combinations, which they arrange to form one continuous line. From them, they then form four other combinations through horizontal confrontation, by considering each rank, the corresponding combination next to it, and the evens or odds found in it. These, then, make eight combinations, placed along one line. From each pair of combinations, they then form one combination, to be placed, underneath the, eight, by considering the evens or odds found in each rank of two combinations. Thus, we have four others under, the eight, from these four combinations, they then form two more combinations, which are likewise placed underneath, the four, from these two, they again form one more combination and place it underneath, the two, they then combine this fifteenth combination with the first one and thus form one more combination, which completes the sixteen, then, they evaluate the whole writing in a curious manner, as to the good luck or misfortune required by the various combinations, taking them as they stand, speculating on them, analyzing them, combining them, making deductions as to the various kinds of existentia, and so on. This craft is prevalent in all civilized regions. There exists a literature dealing with it. Outstanding ancient and modern personalities were famous for it but it is obviously based on arbitrary notions and wishful thinking. The truth that should be present to one's mind is that the supernatural cannot be perceived by any craft at all. The only people who can acquire knowledge of the supernatural are those distinguished human beings who are fitted by nature to return from the world of sensual perception to the world of the spirit. The astrologers, therefore, called all people, able to perceive supernatural knowledge, Venusians, with reference to Venus, because they assume that the position of Venus in the nativities of these people indicates their ability to have supernatural perception. If the person who takes up, sand, writing and similar, practices, is one of those distinguished beings, and if his study of dots, bones, and other things is intended to occupy his senses in order that his soul may return momentarily to the world of the spiritualia, then, sand writing, occupies the same position as casting pebbles, examining the hearts of animals, and gazing into transparent mirrors, as we have mentioned. If this is not so, and if knowledge of the supernatural is sought by means of, sand writing, then, it is meaningless in theory and practice. God guides whomever he wants to guide, the sign by which persons who are disposed by nature to supernatural perceptions can be recognized, is this, when these persons devote themselves to acquiring a knowledge of things, they suffer a departure from their natural condition. They yawn and stretch, and show symptoms of remoteness from sensual perception. These, symptoms, vary in intensity according to the different degrees to which they possess this natural disposition. Those in whom this sign is not found have nothing to do with supernatural perception. They are merely trying to spread the falsehoods to which they are committed. The Hisab and Nim There are, other, groups that also lay down certain rules for the discovery of the supernatural. Their rules do not belong to the first category, that which has to do with the spiritual perceptions of the soul, 
and also differ from speculations based upon astral influences, as assumed by Ptolemy, as well as from the guesswork and conjecturing with which the diviners work. They are nothing but mistakes which, the people who work with them, throw out like snares for weak-minded people, I shall mention only as much of, the subject, as is mentioned in literature and has aroused the interest of distinguished men. One such rule is the method called Hisab and Nim. It is mentioned at the end of the politics which is ascribed to Aristotle. It serves to predict the victor and the vanquished when kings go to war with each other. The procedure is to add up the numerical total of the letters in the name of each king, according to the system of calculation in which the letters of the alphabet in the sequence are leaf, B, J, are given the numerical values of units, tens, hundreds, and thousands from one to a thousand. When that has been done, each total should be divided by nine. The fractional remainder, in both cases, should be kept in mind. The two fractional remainders should be compared. If they are different and both are even or odd numbers, the king, who has the smaller number will be the victor. If one of them is an even and the other an odd number, the king, who has the larger number will be the victor. If the two numbers are equal and both even, the object of the inquiry will be the victor, and if both numbers are odd, the king, who made the inquiry will be the victor. He, Aristotle, reported two verses about this procedure which have wide currency. They are, I think, in the case of even or odd numbers, for both, the smaller number will gain the upper hand. When the numbers differ, as to being even or odd, the larger number will be the victor. The object of the inquiry will be victorious, if the num bears are both equal and even, and if they are both equal and odd, the one who made the inquiry will be victorious. In order to find out what the fractional remainder will be after dividing by nine, a rule has been laid down by the persons who practice the hisab and nim, which is well known among them for that purpose. They take the letters that refer to the number one in the four ranks, a leaf for the units, y for the tens, q for the hundreds, and sh for the thousands. There is no number higher than one thousand that can be indicated by letters, because sh is the last letter of the alphabet ical arrangement for numerical purposes, and arrange these four letters in sequence so as to form a word of four consonants, yash. Then, they do the same with the letters that designate the number two in the, first, three ranks, omitting the thousands because there are no letters of the alphabet left for them. These three letters are B for two, K for twenty and R for two hundred. Arranged in sequence, they form the word BKR. The same is done with the letters that designate the number three, resulting in the word JLS, and so on through all the letters of the alphabet. This results in nine words, nine being the highest unit. The words are YASH, BKR, JLS, DMT, 10th, WSKH, ZDH, HFZ, and TDGH, here arranged according to numerical sequence. Each of them has its own number, one for each, two for BKR, three for JLS, and so on to nine, which belongs to TDGH. If they want to divide a name by nine, they note in which of these nine words each letter of the name appears, substituting the number, of the word, for each letter, of the name, and adding together all the numbers thus obtained. If the sum is greater than nine, they, deduct nine or a multiple of nine from it and, take the fractional remainder. Otherwise, they take, the sum, as it is. The same thing is then done with the other name, and the two results are compared in the manner indicated above. The secret of this rule is clear. 
The fractional remainder in a division by 9 is the same in any given multiple of the powers of 10. In a way, the person making the calculation just sums up the unit number in any given multiple of the powers of 10. The numbers in multiples of higher powers of 10, thus, are like the corresponding units. There is no distinction between 2, 20, 200, or 2000. Likewise, 3, 30, 300, and 3000, all are 3. The numbers are arranged in such a sequence as to indicate nothing but the unit number in any given multiple of the powers of 10. The letters that indicate the same number in the different powers of 10, the units, tens, hundreds, and thousands, are combined each in one word. The number of the corresponding word is valid for all the letters it contains, whether they are units, tens, hundreds, or thousands. Thus, the number of the word can be used for all the letters it contains, and all of them are added up, as we have said. This procedure has been common among people for a long time. Some sheikhs we knew personally were of the opinion that the correct thing is to use nine other words in place of those, mentioned. They too represent consecutive, numbers. The procedure of dividing by nine is the same. These words are, RB, HSK, JZLT, MDWS, HF, TKHDHN, GHSH, H, TDZ, nine words in all, in numerical sequence, they contain three, four, or two letters, respectively. As one can see, they follow no coherent principle, but our sheikhs are transmitting them on the authority of the leading Maribi scholar in astrology as well as letter magic, Abu el-Abbas B. Al-Banna they state on his authority that the use of these words for the division of the hisab and nim is more correct than that of the words hiksh, etc. And God knows better how it may be. All these ways of perceiving the supernatural are based upon no proof, and are not verifiable. Thorough scholars do not attribute the book that contains the Hisab and Nim to Aristotle, because it contains opinions that cannot be verified or proven. This confirms its spuriousness. The reader should investigate this matter critically, if he is a well-grounded scholar. The Zayaraja Another technical rule for alleged discovery of the supernatural is the Zayaraja, which is called Zayaraja of the world. It is attributed to Abul Abbas as Sabdi, a very prominent Maribi Sufi. He lived at the end of the 6th, 12th, century in Marrakesh, during the rule of the Armahand ruler Yagub Almansur. The Zayaraja is a remarkable technical procedure. Many distinguished people have shown great interest in using it for supernatural information, with the help of the well-known enigmatic operation that goes with it. For that purpose, they have been desirous to solve its riddle and uncover its secret. The form of the Zayaraja they use is a large circle that encloses other concentric circles for the spheres, the elements, the created things, the spiritualia, as well as other types of beings and sciences. Each circle is divided into sections, the areas of which represent the signs of the zodiac, or the elements, or other things. The lines dividing each section run to the center, they are called chords. Along each chord there are sets of letters that have a conventional, numerical value. Some are Zamam ciphers, the same as those used for numerals by government officials and accountants in the contemporary Maghrib. Others are the ordinary Gubar ciphers. Inside the Zayaraja, between the circles, are found the names of the sciences and of topics of the created world. On the back of the page containing the circles, there is a table with many squares, 
55 horizontally and 131 vertically. Some of the squares are filled in, partly with numbers and partly with letters, others are empty. The significance of these numbers in their positions is not known, nor are the rules known that govern the distribution of filled and empty squares. The Zdiraja is surrounded by verses in the meter at Tawil and rhyming on La. They describe the procedure which must be followed to discover the answer to a particular inquiry from the Zdiraja. However, since the verses express their meaning in riddles, they lack clarity. On one side of the Zairaja is one verse from a poem ascribed to one of the great Western forecasters of future events, the civilian scholar, Malik B. Wuhab, who lived during the reign of the Lumchana, Armoravids. This is the verse, a weighty question you have got, keep, then, to yourself, remarkable doubts which have been raised and which can be straightened out with diligence. This is the verse commonly used in attempting to obtain the answer to a question with the help of this or other Zairajas. To obtain the answer to a question, the question is written down in unconnected letters and the ascendant as of that day is determined, that is, one of the signs of the zodiac and the degree, of the sign on the horizon. Then, the Zairaja is consulted, and the particular chord of the Zairaja that borders the sign of the zodiac of that, particular, ascendant is chosen. This is followed from where it starts to the center, and then onto the circumference of the circle opposite the ascendant. One takes note of all the letters written upon that chord from beginning to end, and of all the numbers written in between. The latter converted into letters according to their numerical values, transposing all units into tens and all tens into hundreds, and vice versa, as required by the rule governing use of, the Zairaja. The letters thus obtained are put alongside the letters of the question, and one also adds all the letters and numbers that are upon the chord bordering the sign, three signs from that of the ascendant. In this case, one follows it from where it starts to the center, but not beyond it to the circumference. The numbers are converted into letters as before, and added to the other letters. Then, the aforementioned verse by Malik B. Wuhab, which is the basis and norm of the procedure, is written down in unconnected letters, and put aside then the number of the degree of, the ascendant is multiplied by the base of the sign, of the zodiac. In the language, used here, the base is the sign's distance from the last rank, in contrast to the, meaning of, base in the language of astronomers, where it is the distance from the first rank. The degree is then multiplied by another number, called the greatest base and principal cycle. The result of these, multiplications, is entered in the squares of the table, following well-known rules and familiar procedures and, using a certain, number of cycles. Some letters are taken out, others dropped, and the rest matched with what is found among the letters of the verse. Some are transferred to the letters of the question and, the letters, that are with them. Then, these letters are divided by certain numbers called cycles, and from each cycle the letter at which the cycle ends, is removed. The, operation, is repeated with the, entire, number of cycles specified for that, purpose, the result, finally, is, a number of, unconnected letters which are put together consecutively to form the words of a verse at the same meter and rhyme as the aforementioned verse by Malik B. Wuhab, which serves as the basis of the operation. We shall mention all this in the chapter on the sciences, in discussing how a Zairaja of this kind is used. We have seen many distinguished people jump at, the opportunity for, supernatural discoveries through, the Zairaja, by means of operations of this kind.
they think that correspondence, in form, between question and answer shows correspondence in actuality. This is not correct, because, as was mentioned before, perception of the supernatural cannot be attained by means of any technique whatever. It is not impossible that there might be a correspondence in meaning, and a stylistic agreement, between question and answer, such that the answer comes out straight and in agreement with the question. It is not impossible that this could be achieved by just such a technique of separating the letters of the question and those of the chord, entering the numbers that come together as the result of the multiplication of fixed numbers in the table, taking out letters from the table and discarding others, operating repeatedly with a given number of cycles, and matching the whole thing with the letters of the verse arranged in sequence. Intelligent persons may have discovered the relationships among these things, and, as a result, have obtained information about the unknown through them. Finding out relationships between things is the secret, means, whereby the soul obtains knowledge of the unknown from the known. It is a way to obtain such knowledge, especially suited to people of, mystical, training. This, training, gives the intellect added power for analogical reasoning and thinking, as has been explained before several times. It is in this sense that Zayarajas are usually ascribed to people of, mystical, training. This particular Zayaraja is thus ascribed to as Sabti. I have come across another one which is ascribed to Solbi. Abdallah, it is, indeed, a remarkable operation and a wondrous procedure, as it appears to me, the secret of why the answer comes out in rhymed form is to be explained as the result of matching, the letters of the Zayaraja, with the letters of the verse, by Malik B. Wuhayb. This is why the versified answer has the same meter and rhyme. This can be deduced from the fact that we have come across other similar operations in which the matching, of letters, with the verse was omitted. In those cases, the answer did not come out in the form of a verse. This will be shown when the matter is discussed in its proper place. Many people lack the understanding necessary for belief in the genuineness of the operation and its effectiveness in discovering the object of inquiry. They deny its soundness and believe that it is hocus-pocus, the practitioner, they believe, inserts the letters of a verse he, himself, composes as he wishes, from the letters of question and chord. He follows the described technique, which has no system or norm, and then he produces his verse, pretending that it was the result of an operation that followed an established procedure. This reasoning is baseless and wrong. It is the result of such people's inability to understand the relations between the existentia and things that, can be, known and the differences between the various kinds of perception and intellect. Anyone who has some perception naturally denies, the existence of, anything he is not capable of perceiving. In order to refute this, denial of the genuineness of the operation of the Zayaraja, it is sufficient for us, to refer to the fact, that the technique has been observed in operation and that it has been definitely and intelligently established that the operation follows a coherent procedure and sound norms. No one who has much intelligence and sagacity and has had contact with the operation of the Zayaraja would object to this statement. Many an operation with numbers, which are the clearest things in the world, is difficult to grasp, because the existing relations are difficult to establish and intricate. This is the case to a much greater degree here, where the relations are so intricate and strange. Let us mention a problem that will to some degree illustrate the point just stated. Take a number of dirhams and place beside each dirham three fowls. Then, take all the fowls and buy a fowl with them. Then, 
why fowls with all the dirhams for the same price that the first bird cost. How many fowls will you have bought? The answer is 9. As you know, a dirham has 24 pals, 3 pals are 1 eighth of a dirham, 1 is 8 times 1 eighth. Adding up 1 eighth of each dirham buys 1 fowl. This means 8 fowls, for the dirhams, as 1 is 8 times 1 eighth. Add another fowl, the one that was bought originally for the additional fats and that determined the price of the fowls bought with the dirhams. This makes 9. It is clear how the unknown answer was implied in the relations that existed between the numerical data indicated in the problem. This and similar, things, are at first suspected as belonging to the realm of the supernatural, which cannot be known. It is thus obvious that it is from the relations existing among the data that one finds out the unknown from the known. This, however, applies only to events occurring in, the world of, existence or in science. Things of the future belong to the supernatural and cannot be known unless the causes for their happening are known and we have trustworthy information about it. If this is clear, it follows that all the operations of the Zairaja serve merely to discover the words of the answer in the words of the question. As we have seen, it is a question of producing from a given arrangement of letters another arrangement of letters. The secret here lies in the existence of a relationship between the two different arrangements of letters. Someone may be aware of it, whereas someone else may not be aware of it. Those who know the existing relationship can easily discover the answer with the help of the stated rules. From the conventional meanings and the combinations of words, the answer may then also indicate a negative or positive statement regarding the object of the question. This, however, is on another level. It is not on the same level as merely discovering the words of the answer. It implies a conformity of the words to the outside world. Such knowledge cannot be acquired through those operations. It remains veiled to human beings. God claims all his knowledge for himself. God knows and you do not know. Chill books. Audiobooks with relaxing music, visuals and subtitles to help you stay engaged.